13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know, this business I'm in get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. Someone waiting who will hurry up and rescue you this small OCR. Now, here is OCR. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob. Welcoming you to Movie Star Detectives and Richard Diamond Private Detective. This episode is from March 19th, 1950. The episode is entitled The Private Eye Test. This is my favorite Richard Diamond show. I have several favorites. This is one of my favorites. Lots of levity in this episode, but you can't have a lot of levity in the Richard Diamond Private Detective show unless you have a murder. And of course, there is one. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Anyway, <laughs> um, there is a murder, murder in this episode, or a murmur, either one. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm going to let Richard Diamond unfold that story for you. And after that, it's The Lives of Harry Lime from December 7th, 1951. Wow, exactly the 10-year anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And the episode is entitled The Third Woman. We have the third man, and now in this episode, we have the third woman. I wonder if this is a love interest for Harry Lyme. Find out when you listen. And the saint from May 27th, 1951. The episode is entitled 
Children's Crusade, and this is the first episode without Vincent Price as the title role. This goes to Tom Conway. You have to remember that the saint is an Englishman in America solving crimes and taking clients. So, um, I, I like this episode. I listened to it. It's very good. I, I miss Vincent Price, but it doesn't change the fact that these, all these episodes are written very good, very well, very good. Oh boy. <laughs> and then we have The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from February 12th, 1949. The episode is entitled The Lonesome Reunion and Box 13 from February 13th. 1948, the episode is entitled The Sad Night, N-I-G-H-T, not K-N-I-G-H-T. And then we have Sam Shovel from December 9th, 1948. He died with his butes on, and I had to get, um, I had to get a clarification of what butes means. Let me repeat that. I had to get a clarification of what buttes means. I didn't, wasn't sure if I said that correctly. Butte means uh, a, a particularly fine example of something, uh, like uh, the idea was a butte, or a person that is beautiful. And so I wonder if that's what Abbott and Costello are talking about when they're talking about he died with his buttes on. B-E-A-U-T-S. So we'll find out together. And I learned something new and I hope you did too. So enjoy all of these shows. And I'll see you all back here next week. I will in the creeks now rise. Get your vaccination. Wear your mask when you go out, social distance, do all that stuff, wash your hands when you come back, and be safe, be careful, but get that vaccine. You protect yourself, you protect your community, and you protect everyone else. It's not some kind of conspiracy theory. This, if people survive this vaccine, you can survive it, so take the vaccine. Get the vaccine. It's very important. And it's important to your kids, too. If you got kids, it's important to them. So protect the kids. And I'll see you all back here next week. Broadcasting Company presents Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. All right, Shamus, hand it over. Let's have it. Have what? I ain't got time to play games. This time you gotta believe me. This time I'm unhappy, so hand it over. You're not making it very easy. I'm gonna make it a lot tougher. How much tougher can things get? You'd be surprised. I've waited a long time for this. Well, I guess everything comes to he who waits. You won't have to wait anymore. You know something? I don't mind killing you at all. Here's another exciting half hour with Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. 
Diamond Detective Agency, homicide made easy. With us, it's the corpse that counts. Oh, I just don't think I'll ever get used to it. Hi, Helen. Hi. What are you doing? Oh, right now, nothing. But I've been considering a few push-ups or something just to keep my heart going. <laughs> I've been sitting behind this desk so long my blood doesn't circulate anymore. It just lies around in puddles. Oh, Rick. Morning, Mr. Diamond. Oh, hold it a second, honey. Morning, Phil. Who's Phil? Uh, the postman. Oh. Special delivery for you. Return receipt on it. Stand right here. Sure. Hmm. Okay, there you are, Phil. Okay. See you later, Mr. Diamond. Yeah. Rick? Yeah, yes, dear? Well, what is it? Hmm? What did the postman want? Well, he wanted to give me a letter. Oh? Special delivery. Hmm? From the city hall. Oh, must be important. What does it say? Well, let's see. It says, uh, Mr. Richard Diamond, uh, address, so on and so forth. Oh, here. Yeah. Hmm. Dear sir, you are hereby notified that under the laws of this state, you can be called... Oh, for Pete's sake. Well, what's the matter? Of all the rotten... Oh, stop making noises and tell me what's wrong. You know what this stupid letter is about? I've been trying to find out. I, honey, have got to report to the police commission and get examined. Oh, Rick, have you caught something? Dear, in this state, the commission can call in any private detective and give him a test to find out whether or not he can still qualify to keep on operating. You mean they give you a test like in school? You're darn right. Oh, oh and it says here I've got to appear today. Well, what if you don't? Well, I lose the bond I had to post when I took out my license. No, Rick, you better get right down there. Oh, oh, and here's something else that's real cute. Hmm? Guess where I have to take the test. Walt's precinct. Has to be. Yeah, aren't they the little devils? <laughs> Report to Lieutenant Walter Levinson, 5th Precinct, Homicide. What time, Rick? Time? Ten minutes ago. Oh, bye, Rick. <laughs> It was ten after eleven when I hung up on Helen. It was twelve after when I hit the street. The fifth precinct was a good ten blocks away, and I was bounding into the squad room by eleven eighteen. Needless to say, it put a horrible strain on several unused ligaments. Four or five boys in my charming profession were there ahead of me. Well, boys, it looks like the commission's serious this time. When they start dragging in their pets, namely one Richard Diamond... You can bet the heads are going to start rolling. What if the heads do start rolling, Romero? You got a spare? Ah, it's very... Hey, Shamus, you're late. Well, Sergeant Otis, do you need a shave or you've been sleeping with your head on a porcupine? I ain't got no time for your crummy jokes, Diamond. Take a seat and wait your turn. Thank you, Otis. Uh, by the by, you're the last on the list. <laughs> that figured. Yeah, take a seat, Diamond. Last on the list, huh? <laughs> Looks like you don't swing as much wet as you thought you did. At least now I can understand the reason for this examination. Oh, you can, eh? Sure. Guys like you, Romero, would make it necessary to clean up any organization. Oh, I take it you don't think I'm a credit to the profession, eh, Diamond? Take it any way you like, but stick with the first guess. Oh, what's the matter, Rick? Maybe I'm taking some of your business away, eh? Look, Romero, the kind of business you handle would keep me buying too much disinfectant. <laughs> And as long as you're asking what's wrong, I'll tell you two things. Yeah? You're a lousy detective and you'd burn your grandmother if there was enough money in it. Oh, okay, what's the second beep, Ricky? You just said it. You want to talk to me? It's Mr. Diamond. You slip again and I'll put your jaw in a position so you won't forget. Is that right? Oh, get out of my way, Romero. Oh, sure, sure, Mr. Diamond. Hey, Rick, can I see you a minute? Yeah, by all means, see your friends and have a good talk about me. Oh, uh, my... What is it, Alan? 
I just thought you might be more comfortable over here. I would have called you sooner if I was kind of hoping you might lay one on Romero. Oh, I'd love to bust his face up. There's just no excuse for him. Okay, so we all got our bonds to worry about. Relax, you got a long wait. Okay, Diamond, it's your turn now. Not really. Go on in. Sorry you had to wait so long. Thank you, Sergeant Otis. You're very kind. If I'd waited any longer, I'd have been numb. And don't ask me where. Now, come in, Rick. Bring your slate pencil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Sit down, Mr. Diamond. In a nice, soft chair? Oh, I'm afraid I couldn't do that, Lieutenant. I've gotten so used to that bench outside, sort of grown to fit it, you might say. Oh, now, Rick, I'm sorry, but there was nothing I could do about Mr. it. Mr. Diamond, Lieutenant. Huh? Oh, yeah, I hear you've been giving that to a lot of people lately. Otis tells me you and Pat Romero had some kind of discussion along those lines. Ah, why doesn't the government stick Otis out on the beach somewhere and use him for radar? Let him look for flying saucers. Rick, there's no sense in acting like a child. The name is Diamond. Since when? Since two hours of solid sitting, Lieutenant. Okay, Mr. Diamond. Unfortunately, the commission set this thing up, Mr. Diamond. I had nothing to do with it, Mr. Diamond. Hmm. As for your waiting, there's enough hard feelings about your relations with this department. If I put you at the head of the list, Mr. Oh, Diamond... shut up! Lieutenant! Lieutenant! Mr. Diamond! Mr. Diamond! That's better. It certainly is. Here's the first half of the examination paper. You'll get the second half later. Write the answers to these questions. Hmm. How long have I got? Take your time. Still mad? Yeah. Oh. So for the next 30 minutes, I wrote. I wrote and Walt stewed. It was something I could always count on with Walt, and being my best friend, he never had been able to get used to it. I looked up and caught him a couple of times, looking out of the corner of his eye to make sure I was getting them right. Don't misunderstand. Walt would never give me the answers. He'd just cough or blow his nose or something to show me I wasn't on the right track. Hmm? Oh. Oh? Huh. There you are, Lieutenant. Thank you, Mr. Diamond. Am I finished? You most certainly are not. Like the others before you, Mr. Diamond... You will have to solve, to my complete satisfaction, a hypothetical case of homicide. And then come back here and fill in the second half of the examination. Oh, for Pete's sake, Walt. I did that in police school. It's oh, for Pete's sake, Lieutenant. Oh, all right. Uh, one moment, Mr. Diamond. I'll get the man who's going to give you the test. Otis. Uh, yeah, Lieutenant? Oh, no. Would you mind coming in here and taking Mr. Diamond down to the basement? He's ready for the test, huh? Yes, Sergeant. He's ready. <laughs> Now, there's a dummy in that room there, Diamond. You sure leave yourself wide open, Otis. Thanks. Uh, now, the dummy, or in this case, the victim, has been murdered. You will go in and try to solve the murder to the best of your ability. If you are intelligent and observing, you will locate the necessary clues which have been placed about the room. Go on in. How long have I got, Sergeant? Thirty minutes, starting now. Go ahead in. Otis! Otis! Oh, now come on, Shamus. 
You ain't gonna tell me you solved it already. No, Otis, I ain't. But there's something I think you should know. Yeah, what? There are two victims in this room. And I hate to be the one to tell you, but I'm afraid one of them isn't really a dummy. What do you mean? One of them is a body, and it's very dead. Get the lieutenant. Well, there you are, Walt. Pat Romero. Shot through the head. Oh, no, no, no. Shut the door, Otis. Yeah. And lock it. Stand in front of it. Don't let anybody in. How did this happen? How did Romero get shot in my department? Oh, what'll the commissioner say? Uh, Lieutenant... You shut uh, up. Walt, relax. Will you take it easy Oh, now? sure, sure. Relax. Take it easy. When the commissioner hears about this, I'll have a lot of time to relax on a beat in Flatbush. Look, Walt... And I... the newspapers. What's going to happen when they get wind of this? Listen, Walt, I... have a detective shot in lab room of 5th Precinct. Homicide. Relax. Take it easy. Sure, sure. Well, at least shut up long enough to hear what I've got to say. Rick, what am I going to do? Well, now listen to me. If we can solve this thing before anyone gets wind of it, maybe it won't be so bad. You're right. Maybe it won't. We'll keep this room closed up as long as possible. Otis, if you let anyone in here, I'll personally see that you never... Where are you going, Diamond? I'm going to Romero's office. I'll call you from there. Make a check on his body and have all the dope ready for me. Oh, don't you worry about the dope, Rick. I've got more dope in this department than any other in the whole world. I've got the biggest. Otis! Uh, yeah, Lieutenant? Walt chased Otis up the wall, and I headed for Pat Romero's office. Everything was happening so fast, I didn't take time to think much past the fact that the private detective profession had taken a step in the right direction when someone retired Romero. But Walt was in a spot, and someone had broken the law, so it looked like it was up to me to try and tie things together. I got to Romero's building, went up to the eighth floor, tripped over a couple of rats having a nervous breakdown because they couldn't find their way out, found his office, opened the door, and started feeling sorry for myself right away. Oh. I never saw him. All I remember is something black and shiny in front of my face just as I hit the floor. When I tried to take a better look, the bright, shiny something kissed me right in the mouth and I went to sleep the hard way. When I finally came around, it was like trying to tiptoe through an acre of beach balls. I stumbled a couple of times, spit out a little blood. Very little, because the way I felt, there couldn't have been too much left. When I finally got around to a normal way of thinking, I perceived two things. It was still daytime, and the office of one Mr. Pat Romero, deceased, was a wreck. Fifth Precinct, Homicide. Well? Who is this first? Oh, now, come on. This is Diamond. Well, I thought so, but I'm not going to admit anything for a while, even my name. Anyone find out about... Shh, no. What did you find out? Well, I walked into his office and got my brain scattered. By whom? By whom? I don't know. I wish I did. I have a very sore head. Well, Romero was shot all right, but we can't find the bullet. That's well, not a very big room. We'll find it, but in the meantime, here's something else. Romero had $10,000 in cash on him. New bills. Go ahead. That's all we've come up with so far. We'll have more to go on when we find that bullet. Well, maybe it's still in him. Went clean through. Messed up his pretty patent leather haircut. What? What do you mean, what? I said the bullet... Oh, never through. mind. Never mind, Walt. Bless your little pointed head. You just gave me an idea. About what? About the guy who worked me over a little while ago. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Hurry up and find that missing bullet. Walt had said something about patent leather when he referred to Romero's greasy hairdo. That was all I needed. It opened a door someplace, and there, sitting with its legs crossed, was the biggest hunch I've ever seen. And it was wearing patent leather shoes. The only guy I could think of who would know a man like Romero and still wear patent leather shoes in the afternoon 
was a local gambler with a reputation as a fashion plate, monocles, striped trousers, and always the patent leather shoes. In fact, that's where he got his nickname, the patent leather kid. This was a small clue, and I knew it, but one thing was in my favor. Anyone who would tear up Romero's office and kick me in the face had to be a bad little boy. And the patent leather kid was tight casting. The kid's real name was Amos Fletcher, and he ran a small club over on 14th Street. Oh, I'm sorry, my friend, but the... Well... Hello, Fletcher. I was going to say I'm sorry, my friend, but the place isn't open until 6. I got a few questions. Come back at 6. Fletcher, I'm a little unhappy right about now. You answer the questions like a good boy or I'll kick you all over the place. You mind if I call a few of my boys to watch? If you like. Tell them I got a 38 under my arm that goes off and I get excited. Tell them I sort of lose my head when I get kicked in the mouth and don't get the answers I want. <laughs> I think you better believe me. So you got kicked in the mouth? Yeah, by a pair of patent leather shoes, just like yours. I had nothing to do with it. You know a guy named Romero? Romero? No, I don't know a guy by that name. Where were you an hour ago? Right here. I have a couple of friends to prove it. We were playing cards, canasta. Okay, okay. I'm glad you're satisfied, Mr. Diamond. We said I was satisfied. No? Not a bit. Well, what about this Romero? He got himself shot. Badly? As bad as you can get shot. Well, Shamus, that's a chance you boys take. Maybe Romero would have lived longer in another racket. Think about it, Shamus. I'll think about it, Fletcher. I'll think about it a long time. Good. Let me know what you decide. You'll hear about it. Find out where Amos Fletcher does his banking. See if he's made any big withdrawals lately. Patent leather kid? What's he got to do with it? Just check. Okay, okay. What about the bullet? Have you found that yet? No. Oh, swell. Did you find anything else? A bunch of stuff in Romero's wallet. What? Oh, driver's license, social security numbers, some business cards. Card from a real estate office that might be important. Why should it be? A notation on the back. Says, call Miss Crockett about new lease. Date after that, yesterday. New lease? Romero has an office. I wonder what this new lease is. Why don't you check? Crockett Real Estate, Lexington Avenue. Bye. I'll revour. What? Something I could... Well, well, well. Good afternoon. Ain't a though. <laughs> Those can be before you rolled them gorgeous shoulders through that door. <laughs> sit, sit down, Sonny. Relax. Uh, have yourself a drink. Uh, no, thanks. A little early in the day for me. Uh, a little early. Well, you'll excuse me, won't you, Sonny? If it gets any later, my stomach's liable to rust. <laughs> <coughs> Get it? Yeah, all over me. What's your name, Sonny? Uh... Gotta know, you know, if I'm going to sell you some real estate. Play football in school, Sonny? Uh... Figures, figures. Oh, look at them shoulders. Look, sweetheart. Huh? What did you say? I said, look, sweetheart. Oh. Why? 
Well, no sense in raising all these goosebumps for nothing. <laughs> Sweetheart, huh? <clears throat> well, what can I do for you, Sonny? You want Madison Avenue at 50 cents a front foot? <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. Hmm. Sure you won't have a drink, Sonny? Uh, no, thanks. I'd just like to ask you one question. Well, go, go right ahead, Sonny. You know, I... I, I may not look it, but I'm considered one of the best real estate agents in this state. Do you know a man named Romero? Sure, I know him. Did you just rent him some offices? Yep. Signed the lease yesterday. A whole new suit of offices over on 46th Street. 46th Street? Mm. Where on 46? Oh, right. The other... Say, are, are you a cop? What makes you think that? Oh, I don't know. Romero's offices are right across from the police station. The 5th Precinct. Sonny, you bother me. You're too nervous. Now, why don't you just sit down and get comfortable and we'll what talk... What building are the offices in? Carson Building on the 4th floor. But why don't you just take it easy, Sonny? Thanks, Rick, we know Romero was shot in this room while he was either sitting or kneeling. Because the bullet entered his head at a high angle. Yeah. Huh? I think he was shot with a rifle, Walt. A rifle? Yeah, from across the street. Romero rented some new offices in the Carson building, directly opposite this building. I just saw them. Somebody tore in those apart, too. Uh, well, I checked on Amos Fletcher. Does his banking at the National. Made a withdrawal this morning, 10,000 bucks, in new bills. Who is it? Otis. Come on in. Has a sham assaulted yet, Lieutenant? Walt, come here. Yeah? Now, look, fourth floor. Carson building, right over there. See the open window? Yeah. Now, if someone in one of those offices fired a rifle, and there's no bullet hole in the lower portion of the window in this room, that means it went through the open part. So Romero would have to be standing all, let's say, about, uh... Oh, about right here. That would make the slug somewhere out in the hall. Right. But it would have to pass through the door. There's no hole in the door. Hey, the door was open when me and the shamas came down here. That's right, Walt. Let's see if we can find that bullet. What was Romero doing down here? Oh, he was just finishing this part of the test when I went up to get diamond. Hey, Walt, Walt. Huh? I think I got the bullet. Yeah. Under the rug. Yeah, you'll have to pry it out. It's in the floor pretty deep. Okay. Who did you go after? Amos Fletcher? That's right. What's your proof? Not much. It's, it's all a guess. You know what kind of a guy Romero was. Yeah, the worst. Well, let's see. Romero had 10000 in his pocket. Fletcher took out 10000 this morning. Sounds like blackmail. Could be. Somebody was tearing Romero's old office apart looking for something when I broke in on him. And got a patent leather shoe in the face for my trouble. That isn't very much to go on. Well, how about this? I asked Fletcher if he knew Romero. He said no. But as I left, he mentioned that Romero probably got killed because, like myself, he was in the wrong racket. How did he know that? Well, still not enough to convict him. Would a confession do it, Grouchy? You know darn good and well a confession is the only thing that would do it. That or find the murder weapon and prove it belongs to Fletcher. No, you're so technical. Okay, I'm I'm going back to the office. Give me about ten minutes and have Otis call Fletcher. Oh? Have Otis call Fletcher? Oh, not as Sergeant Otis. Just just have him call and give Fletcher, oh, a friendly tip. From the way those two offices were torn up, it's my guess that Fletcher hasn't found what he's looking for yet. Just tell him I found it. Found what? Found anything. You don't have to be specific. Who said I was going to be? Going to be what, you mallet head? Specific! You don't even know what it means. It means precisely formulated or restricted. Huh? Oh, here, I got the bullet out of the floor, Lieutenant. 
Bye, Walt. I left the precinct and headed back for Broadway in my office on the corner of 53rd. I knew that Amos Fletcher, the patent leather kid, was the boy we wanted. But whether or not he'd fall for the gag was a matter of luck. Luck is a big part of my business. So I went to my office and sat on behind my desk to wait. In case Amos Fletcher showed up, I wanted to be sure to be able to hold up my end of the conversation. So I took out my thirty-eight and put it across my knees. Diamond Detective Agency... If you've slaughtered a dozen, no difference to me. One or fifty, it's the same old fee. What kind of a remark is that, Shamus? What kind of a remark did it sound like, Sergeant? I ain't got time to answer that. I called Fletcher. Good. What did you tell him? Well, I was pretty good, as a matter of fact. I disguised my voice like this, and I says, Amos Fletcher, and he says, yeah. So I says, just a little tip I thought you might want to know about. Richard Diamond has got that which you has been looking for. He found it in Romero's new offices. How was that, Shamus? Brilliant change of voice. Uh, you think it'll work? Put down the phone. You hear me, Shamus? You think it'll work? Hang it up. Hey, Diamond! Oh, that's better. All right, Shamus, let's have it. Have what? I haven't got time to play games. This time, you've got to believe me. This time, I'm unhappy, so hand it over. You're making it pretty tough, Fletcher. I'm going to make it a lot tougher. Oh. oh, now, isn't that a pretty big gun to be carrying around? It's a little big, sure, but it does everything I want it to. Mm-hmm. A German Schmeischer, isn't it? That's right. Put a stock on it, and you could shoot it like a rifle. I'm going to count three, and then I'm just going to shoot it. Now, why don't you be smart and give me the stuff? Let it ring. It might be a paying client. It might. Let it ring. You shot Pat Romero from his new offices across the street from the 5th Precinct, didn't you, Fletcher? Is that what you say? Yeah. What was he doing, blackmailing you? You gave him $10,000 sometime today. You know, you're talking yourself right into a long box. Why did you shoot him at a police station? I paid him the 10000 and he handed me the stuff, and I thought it was a McCoy. I went back to my office and started checking through the stuff. That phone's going to bother me! There. You checked the stuff back in your office, and you found out it was phony. You got worried, went back to Romero's offices. He wasn't there. He was across the street in the 5th Precinct. You spotted him through the window and shot him. That's right, Shamus. I saw him talking to a cop and figured he might be spilling his guts. I waited until a cop left and I nailed him. Now give me the stuff. You'll have to believe me, Fletcher. I haven't got it. Don't give me that. I got a tip. Sure you did. That was Sergeant Otis from Homicide. You're crazy. Am I? He said, just a little tip. I thought maybe you might want to know about. Richard Diamond has got that which you has been looking for. <laughs> what did Romero have on you? Some records. You know something, Diamond? I don't mind killing you at all. Drop it, Fletcher. What? Wait. I got Walt. Oh. 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 Fletcher. Fletcher. How is he, Walt? Pretty bad. I didn't know you had a gun, Rick. Neither did Fletcher. Diamond. Yeah? Phone for a doctor. Hurry. I'll do it, Rick. Hey, who tore this phone out of the wall? Fletcher got tired of hearing it ring. <laughs> What you playing, Rick? Oh, it's an old thing. Oh. Yes. Hello, Helen. This is Walt. Yes, Walt. He's right here. Thanks, Dan. Hello, Walt. Rick, we found the stuff Romero was blackmailing Fletcher with in a safety deposit box. 
bunch of books that exposed one of Fletcher's old rackets, enough to send him away for life. Well, bully for you. Oh, and something else. You better get down here right away. What for? You didn't finish your test. You don't want to flunk it, do you? What? You got the first part all right, the hypothetical part I can cover for you, but you didn't do anything on the last part of the written examination. Now, you listen to me, fatty. Fatty? The fattest. I've chased my head off solving a case and getting your big feet... Big feet? Big feet out of trouble. I've gotten shot at, insulted, kicked in the face. Well, low I don't want to hear any more of your lame brain excuses. You just fix it up for me, and I'm going to go in and drop a few subtle hints to the commissioner about his nasty old lieutenant. You wouldn't. Oh, but I would. What did you say? Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Take the test for me. Fill out the answers yourself. Cheat. Cheat? Cheat! But, but, but... Oh, that's what you always say. Now, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, honey, you were asking me about this little old song. Hmm, pretty. What is it? Oh, well, give a listen. <clears throat> oh, how I miss you tonight. Miss you when lights are low. Oh, how I need you tonight. More than you'll ever know Each moment though we're apart You're never out of my heart But I'd rather be lonely And wait for you only Oh, pal, how I miss you tonight. Okay? Mm, oh, it's very pretty. Shall I? Uh, might as well. Yes? May I please speak to Mr. Diamond? Oh, my goodness. Rick? No, what? Yes, but look out. Oh, oh, all right. Hello? You passed, Mr. Diamond, 99 out of 100. 99 out of 100, hmm? Which one did I miss? The last one. I knew you wouldn't care, so I let Otis fill it in for you. No. Yes, the commissioner wants to see you tomorrow morning. Why? What was the question? To what department does the cleanup squad belong? Well, what did Otis write for an answer? The Department of Sanitation. Tomorrow at 11, Rick. <laughs> Au revoir. <laughs> You have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Ed Begley played Lieutenant Walt Levinson. Also in the cast were Wilms Herbert, Francis Robinson, Don Diamond, Anne Morrison, and Paul Dubov. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Today's show was written by Blake Edwards and directed by Russell Hughes. Dick Powell currently may be seen in the motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. This is Eddie King inviting you to be with us next Sunday at this same time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. What's on NBC today? One of the finest programs in NBC's Sunday lineup of stellar entertainment is Theater Guild on the Air. Later today, be sure to hear Richard Widmark and Teresa Wright in the romantic comedy, There's Always Juliet. That's Richard Widmark and Teresa Wright on Theater Guild on the Air, today on this NBC station. Next, hear James Melton and Harvest of Stars on NBC. 
presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man with zither music by Anton Karras. was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Yes, come on, speak up. Corporal Lime is here, sir. Oh, he is, is he? Well, you can tell Corporal Lime I want to see him. Right now. You know, it's funny, but all during my military career, I've never seemed to be able to force myself to be very fond of the brass. You've got to have an army, you've got to have the brass, I suppose, but I don't honestly see why. Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, the third man in today's story, The Third Woman. You know something, Corporal Lyme? No, sir. If we could prove half of this stuff in this file, you'd be celebrating your 100th birthday in a military prison. Yes, sir. I dare say so, sir. Shut up and listen. You report to the address on this slip of paper. It's a tailor on Savile Row. The tailor has his instructions. He's to make you three suits, including the full soup and fish. And the whole outfit's to be ready in 48 hours. Isn't that awful? Yes, sir. Wait a minute. It gets worse. You go to the Savoy Hotel. You know where that is? Yes, sir. A room is reserved there for you. You're registered as a civilian. For purposes of cutting red tape, you're going to be a civilian. But here are your papers. You'll be taking a trip pretty soon. Yes, we're sending you away from all these bombs. This courage. Tell you, this whole army is as nutty as a fruitcake. I didn't say that, did I, Lyme? No, sir, you didn't. Look at these papers. Yes, sir. See how you're traveling? Well, yes, sir, but this must be a joke. Oh, it's funny, all right. But it's true. There's an Allied command is sending you on a holiday, Corporal Lyme, and you're traveling as a civilian with the rank of full colonel. That's what I mean about brass. An unfriendly attitude. Unnecessary, I thought. Why couldn't the Major have been nice? Well, if he was, I guess he wouldn't have been a Major. 
Because if you look at it that way, I was going to have to begin changing my loyalties because according to my new papers, I was part of the brands now myself. I got my new suit, and then they sent me to see a certain Captain Smith. I don't think that was his real name. He was something very high in the hush-hush department, but that was the name I was to call him by when we met. This was all set up for midnight on the right side of Cleopatra's Needle. <laughs> I tell you, the whole thing was so cloak and dagger, it made me want to giggle, but of course I did. <laughs> very careful to play it straight. I didn't want to lose my nice new wardrobe. I say, could you give me a light? We're not supposed to show a light. That's correct. And what was in the bottle? Uh, Jenkins' ear. Good oh. How did Morgan die? He died a governor. Splendid, Mr. Lyme. All the answers perfectly correct. <laughs> Silly questions, what? <laughs> Silly answers, too, come to think of it. But the silliness makes it easier to remember, I always think. Uh, mnemonics, don't you know? Uh, right? Uh, right? Right, if you say so, Captain Smith. Yes, well, now let's get down to cases. We've borrowed you from your people, Lyme, because of your special qualifications. Languages, looks, a certain rather celebrated aptitude for the opposite sex, <clears throat> and a fair share of unmitigated gall. Uh, yes, sir. Don't call me sir. Remember, this isn't the army, not strictly speaking. No, this is another show. What do you think of spying, Lyme? Well, I, I don't know. I never tried. Oh, the dirty business, of course. Absolutely filthy. But then it's a profession like anything else. Yeah, I suppose. For one thing, the pay is abominable. That's why so many of the regular pros turn double agent on us. You know what a double agent is, don't you? Well, that's an agent who sells out to another power, isn't it? Yes. Well, onto most of that lot, of course. We use them when we can, but it's always sticky. No doubt about that, sticky. Well, first of all, of course, we're not dealing with soldiers or patriots, and no money arrangement is ever really final or binding. Mm. That's why we have to use pressure. Yeah. Uh, different sorts of pressure, don't you know? Uh, blackmail, for instance. Blackmail? Listen. Mm. Another one of those BV-2s. That was in Chelsea. Uh. Falling weapons, aren't they, guided missiles? I'll tell you something, Lyme, because it's going to be part of your job. This V-2 is nothing. Jetty's getting ready with something a good deal worse in the same line. About ten times worse, according to our information. Yes. Somewhere in Europe, more than a hundred feet underground, there's a factory where they're busy perfecting quite a new thing. We've got to stop them, Lyme. Want to help? Oh, sure. You didn't ever happen to meet a female named Brunel, did you? No, I don't think so. Brunel? Also brown? Also prune? Well, that doesn't ring any bells. No, well, maybe when you see her, there'll be a small chime or two. She's been around, and so I gather have you, right? Well, I've been around a bit, Captain Smith, but I don't know your brunel, brown or brune. Reddish blonde, sometimes auburn, grey eyes, rather tall, speaks eight languages perfectly, five or six more, well enough. No, she's been a professional agent for more than 15 years. Good at her work, too. Yes, she's quite valuable to us, off and on. This, it appears, is one of the off times. Very much off. She was due to send us something rather important, you know. I gave you a hint about that. Oh, you, you mean the new rocket factory? Brunel has information about where it is and she won't send it? worse, she's given us false information. Mm -hmm. We think she really did manage to find out where this new guided missile thing is being built. And we guess she isn't telling us the truth because the Germans have some sort of hold over her. Yes, blackmail or something beastly. Now, we'd like you to see if you can't get some sort of line on just what it is. We don't really expect you to succeed, but well, go down and have a try, won't you? Yes, but what, what do I do? Where do I go? You'll receive sealed instructions when you get on the plane. On the plane? Details, background, all that sort of thing. Yes, but what do you mean? You see that car across the way. Oh, I see a car. It's but... waiting to take you to the airport. Well, good hunting. 
Pilots? Pilots? Yes. That doesn't look like the Bosporus to me. No, it doesn't. It, it looks like the Atlantic Ocean. Yes, it does, doesn't it? But don't you know what it says in my instructions? I mustn't tell that, you know. Those instructions are supposed to be secret. That's all very well, but I'm under orders to proceed to Istanbul, and here we are in... Where are we, anyway? Well, this flight isn't part of your show at all. It just happened to be carrying you, if you see what I mean. A little out of your way, of course. An awful lot of red tape attached to getting in and out of these new yes, countries. My instructions are... Don't but... worry, there's bound to be someone of your chaps waiting to take you the rest of your journey tomorrow morning. Meanwhile, relax and enjoy Lisbon. We're coming in now. Oh, so that's where we are. Yes, you've got to fasten your seatbelt. Where's that place, Lisbon? Sure enough, they had me all fixed up for a flight to Turkey in the morning. I wasn't complaining. Oh, there weren't any rockets falling on Lisbon. Anyway, it's always been one of my favorite places for having a good time. I checked into the hotel, changed into my nice new white tie and tails, and took a cab out to the casino at Estoril. What are you doing in Lisbon? My dear, in this city there are two things we try to avoid. The first is never, unless it's absolutely necessary, to address a friend by name. After all, you know one's name may not be one's name anymore. Oh, my darling, what's the second rule? It is the most strict one. We observe it very carefully. Fine, but you can't just expect me to obey the law if I don't know it. You asked me what I was doing in Lisbon. Sherry, no matter what the provocation, we never, never, under any circumstances, ask each other what we are doing in Lisbon. Well, I'm perfectly willing to tell you what I'm doing. Don't bother. Why not? I've got a good job. Oh? Yes. I represent the biggest Swedish manufacturers of ball bearings, and tomorrow I'm going up to Stockholm. To Stockholm? By way of Istanbul? Oh. You mean you know? Sherry, in Lisbon these days, everyone knows everything about everybody, and no one asks anybody anything. The first is a question of pride, and the second of politesse. It's very warm in here. Shall we go out on the terrace? Am I allowed to answer that one, or must I tell you in code? Uh, you like it here in Lisbon, Genevieve? Or am I breaking the rules again? I have my work. And, of course, I mustn't ask you what the work is. You know, I remember when you used to be a nice little hard-working confidence girl in Cairo. You tried to avoid the cops of at least five different countries, but you weren't nearly so secretive. Okay, okay. What are we allowed to talk about now? Harry. Yeah? Why should we talk? That's true. Why should we? That was a nice kiss. You still do that very nicely, Harry, but... <laughs> What's the joke? You are such a terrible spy. Oh, I guess I am a spy. Listen, Harry, I've always liked you. I'm not working for your people, but I know what you are up to. Don't go to Istanbul. I haven't got any choice, honey. I think I'd go anywhere. You know, make your ass as a cat. Why shouldn't I go? They put you onto something terribly big, Harry. Terribly important. Well, that's very flattering, isn't it? Tell me, what do you know about a woman called Brunel? Oh, she's been an agent a long time. I don't know her, but I've seen her once in Samoritz and again in Deauville. I hear she's clever. They're watching from the terrace. Oh. I must go back now, but please, Harry, do not go to Istanbul. It's not the woman Brunel. It is the situation... I tell you, Harry, it's too big for an amateur. It's too big for anyone. Oh, but they've given me a chance. And why? Uh, why have they sent you? Because you are so experienced in espionage? Well, of course not. That isn't the reason. Then you know, Harry. You know why people like you are sent on missions like this? No, I can't say that I do. Because you do not matter at all. That is why. 
because they don't care what happens to you, not one little bit. Because you are, how you say, expendable. Orson Welles returns in just a moment as the third man. Continues with today's story, The Third Woman. We made good time to Istanbul with only a few nasty minutes, and I thought a couple of message minutes were going to get on our tail. But by 11 o'clock that evening, all my arrangements were made. I was carefully dressed once again in my nice new English white tie and tails. I made my way straight to Georgette's, an upholstered sewer masquerading as a nightclub. Left my top hat with a check girl and called for the head waiter. Good evening, sir. You are alone, monsieur? Perhaps I can get my near table. Near the floor, senor. Where's Georgette? I beg pardon? You heard me, Georgette. Georgette? Yes, where is he? There's no one here by that name, sir. This is for you. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, please come this way. Through here, sir. Thanks. If you will step through the kitchen, sir. Here we are. J'espère vous voir demain, chérie. Nous allons parler ensemble. Excuse, please. Yes, what is he? Uh, it's a gentleman here who says he knows you. Oh, yes, and who? Harry. Hiya, George. Well, well, Harry. Just a minute. J'ouvre vous demain, comme d'habitude. Oui? Oui, au revoir. Well. Well, Harry. May I sit down? I won't be able to stop you. What you after? Information. Willing to pay for it. With money? With money. Top market price. You know an agent called Brunel? Suppose I did. Who's shaking her down? Who wants to know? People with the money, George. There's a lovely American Cadillac, Harry. Um, Custom-made body. I'll, I'll give you the address of the man who wants I'll to sell it. I'll drive it over to your place tomorrow. What's the address? Not my address, Harry. That wouldn't be very discreet. There's a new nightclub out by the pyramids. The Sphinx? You get around, don't you? Want the car at the swing? Yes, leave it in the parking lot about midnight tomorrow. Uh, give the key to the doorman. And then what? I'll have a table reserved for us inside. If you don't like what I tell you, you can take back the key. Otherwise, I'll drive home in a new Cadillac, okay? The next day, I bought the car. That night, I left it in the parking lot by the Sphinx. I got a nice big salam from the Senegalese doorman when I gave him the car key. And inside, I found Georgette waiting for me at the ringside table. That's uh, a nice place, isn't it? Hello, I'm better than that flea bag of yours. What are you drinking? Anything. Make mine a double scotch. Now oh, then, let's have the dope. I hate to do this, Harry. It goes against my principles. Oh, cut it out, Georgie uh, boy. Let's get down to case. What you were asking about has a sister. No, oh, is that it? A younger sister. Where is she now? 
She's in Istanbul, Cole, but uh, she isn't free to move around anymore. And that's a snatch? You might say she's being held as a hostage. Who's doing the holding? The young lady whose name, by the way, is Julie, arrived in Turkey three weeks ago for her holidays. She's, she's been going to school in Switzerland. She hasn't seen her older sister for a year. Come on, George, where is she? You might say um, she's a guest at a certain embassy. What embassy? I prefer not to use proper names, Harry. Here's the address. Yes, I told you not to use any names, Harry. Yeah, tough gang here in Istanbul, even for Nazis, ever since my papa. One more name and I leave. Not by car, sweetheart. The key the doorman's holding doesn't oh, fit. Crossing me up as usual. Not Harry. at all. Here's the real key. You get it when you're finished. Finished what? I told you everything I know. You told me Brunel's sister's been kidnapped by the Germans. Okay. Okay. Sister's being held in the German embassy. How long do you think they can keep her? Well, this is as good as mine. I'd say for as long as Brunel herself can be forced to function effectively. You mean as a double agent? Of course. She must have got on something good, and the Germans must be particularly anxious for her not to spill it. They're probably hoping to use it to lead your people just as far away from the truth as possible, and uh, for as long as possible. And uh, what happens when Brunel gets tired of cooperating? She's very fond of that kid sister. So what happens to her finally, to Julia? They'll kill her, won't they? Yes. I should think so. Uh, waiter! Waiter, bring me another anisette. Yes? What is it? Miss Brunel? What do you want? I came here to see you about Captain Jenkins. What about him? His ear is in a bottle. Also, there's Governor Morgan. Come in, come in. Okay. No need for that rigmarole. I know who you are. You're Harry Lahn. You used to run contraband out of Marseille in 37. I met you once in Monte Carlo. Now, they've sent you from London. What's your message? Sorry, I haven't got any message. Nonsense. They've sent you here to tell me something. What is it? The message is supposed to come from you, Miss Brunel. About 500 RAF planes waiting for the address of a certain rocket factory. The information is past due. I've sent the information through the regular channels. It wasn't information. The London people took the trouble to check up on it. What you sent was the location and description of a shoe factory in Norway. And, Miss Brunel, do you know what they're actually making in that factory? No. Shoes. The London people think you have another address, Miss Brunel. They sent me to get it from you. I've always given perfect satisfaction. My save it, honey, save it. Let's get the whole thing down to facts. Fact one... You know where that rocket factory really is. Fact two, I know where your kid sister really is. Fact three, get me the rocket factory, and I'll deliver Julie. How can you do that? There, there are over 60 people in the embassy. She's up on the third floor. There are armed guards. They're giving a reception, aren't they, tomorrow night? Who? A German embassy, honey. Don't go stupid on me. I want an invitation. But how can I do that? You can do it. You're working for them, aren't you? Here's the name. I've squared it with the Istanbul police. You go on from there. Get me the invitation to that party. And get yourself two tickets for Switzerland. You mean you really think... The plane leaves at 4.30 in the morning. Bring all the information on that rocket factory to the airport. I'll bring Julie. Well, uh, goodbye now. Sorry, but I've got to run. Where are you going? I'm going to play pinochle with the chief of the Turkish fire department. Well, goodbye for now. night, bearing my invitation from the Nazi embassy, courtesy of Miss Brunel, and wearing the best saddle row, white tie and tails, courtesy of the Allied Command, I paid my respects to His Excellency, the German ambassador. Hi, Hitler. Ah, good evening, sir. 
Mr. Cotton, uh, Cotton, isn't it? Yes. yes, I believe that is the name. Mr. Cotton. Cotton is the name, yes, sir. Good evening, Mr. Abbas. It's awfully nice of you to invite oh, me. Oh, it is our Thank pleasure, much, Mr. Sir. Cotton. The German Reich is particularly interested in the development of industry. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I would like to put a few questions to you privately, Mr. Cotton. Won't well, you please uh, step this way? Well, Mr. Ambassador... So I won't keep you long if you will just step into the elevator. All right. After you, please. Thank you. It is rash to talk serious business in this large public gathering. We will be much quieter in my study. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ask you, please. Through here, Mr. Lyme. Hey. Put up your hands, Mr. Lyme. Hi. And keep some, sir. This gentleman, as you can see, is armed, and this room is quite soundproof. He will not hesitate to use his gun. Okay. Now what happens? We will discuss that a bit later, Mr. Lyon. Now I must return to my guest. Meanwhile, Gerhard here will keep you company. Well, Gerhard, here we are. Keep your hands up. Uh, the ambassador says I'm stupid, Gerhard. Do you agree with him? All the Americans are stupid. You think it'd be stupid for me to try to get that gun away from you, Gerhard? Well, I suppose it would, but anyway, I'm going to try. <laughs> Sorry, I only got you in the leg, old man, but I never was much of a shot. What I what I need today is to practice my marksmanship, and since this is such a nice soundproof... Room, what are you doing? What shall I try for, Gerhard? An arm or the other leg? Oh, no, no! All right, then. Where's the girl? What girl? Uh... It was your right hand, wasn't it, Gerhard? Now, then, let's try for a foot. No, no, she's in there. Oh, okay, thanks. Julie, Julie. What do you want? I'm not one of the Nazis, Julie. You have to take my word for it. I'm your sister's friend. That's the elevator. The elevator? Don't come here. Bolt the door. What's the good? This door is the only way out. Well, there's the window. No, you. The window's locked, isn't it? Here, give me that chair. I tell you, it's no use. One, two, three. Big gardens on this side of the house. No one will hear. And beside the embassy, guards. Oh, they're starting to break down the door. Jump, Julie. Through the window. Through the window. Where else, you little mug? This was going to the ground. Shut up and jump. That's the girl. Put down that gun, Lyme. Look out below, Julie. I'm coming after you. Four stories, Lyme. You wish to kill yourself. Well, Mr. Ambassador, you told me I was stupid. I'll feed us in. That night, I was seen in the streets of Istanbul, one of the strangest sights in the history of that historic city. A procession, a procession of firemen, firemen bearing two bundles wrapped in canvas, rushed out of the German compound and boarded a fire truck, a gigantic hook and ladder. bundles, which were, of course, firemen's jumping nets, there emerged two figures, a young lady by the name of Julie and a gentleman called Harry Lyme. Where to, Mr. Lyme? Where do we take you? To the airport and step on it. Yes? Uh, Major? Yes, yes, come on, speak up. Corporal Lyme is here, sir. Oh, he is, is he? Well, you can tell Corporal Lime I want to see him right now. Here I was back in London. Here was my 
old friends, the Major and Captain Smith, only this time the Major had a new sheet of papers concerning my exploits on the desk in front of me. Less about black market this time and more about Harry Lyme, the hero. I came to attention, saluted smartly. Corporal Lyme. Yes, sir. I've been reading your report. Yes, Very sir. interesting. Thank you, sir. Oh, there's just one thing. Yes, Captain Smith? The Turkey is a neutral country. How did you manage to get all that cooperation out of the fire department? Well, I used persuasion, sir. You'll find it all down on the expense account, Major. Hmm. I thought you might like to know, Corporal, that there was quite an air raid the other night over a certain factory on the Baltic Sea. The Germans won't be making that new rocket, Corporal. Not for some time, anyway. Oh, I'm glad to hear it, sir. I suppose you said... Glad to hear it, sir. I suppose you said... Glad to hear it, sir. I suppose you said... Glad to hear it, sir. I suppose you think we owe the whole thing to you, don't you, Corporal? Well, we don't. Uh, no, sir. That air raid was held three nights ago when you were in Lisbon. Three nights ago? But, sir... Brunel wasn't the only source of information. Not by a long shot. Now, I'm instructed to tell you that the facts we were looking for were sent to us from Portugal, from an agent by the name of Genevieve. However, we are most grateful for your help. I've been asked to give you this. Wait a minute, where did I put it? Sometimes I think this isn't a war at all, but a grand convention of lunatics. I didn't say that, did I, Corporal? No, sir, you didn't. I didn't think I did. Here you are. This is from the British with their compliments. Oh, thank you, sir. Uh, what is it? It's an address. We thought you might have lost it. It's that tailor in Savile Row. Yeah. They want you to return the suit. <laughs> returns in just a moment. Now, Harry Lyme. One thing about Genevieve, she taught me a lesson. Now I understand why women make better spies than men. They're so obviously more honest. You know, you always presume they're lying. Never even suspect that they might be telling the truth.
Hey everyone, <clears throat> excuse me, this is OTR Rob. I thought I would step in here and I have to say that, you know, all of the Vincent Price episodes of The Saint were in really marvelous sound quality and then when it came to when Tom Conway took over, not so much. I don't think people really tried their best to preserve these recordings like they did um, Vincent Price's version of The Saint. So this one really didn't, uh, wasn't really great for the first outing for Tom Conway as far as sound is concerned. I tried to do the best I could to clean it up. It wasn't, uh, it didn't come out as perfectly as I wanted, but it did come out a bit better than what I was going to present to you. So, in a way, my the program I've been using for the past eight years slowly but surely has been kind of going, getting up to speed on what their claims were with this program and what this program could do as far as sound quality. So, it's improved somewhat, but it's still not perfect. And but I think I made it so that it sounds at least a bit more intelligible. If you would have heard the original recording, you would have not wanted to listen to it simply because of the noise factor. And I think that was because someone had the original recording and they decided that they weren't going to make sure that the needle that they used was the proper needle for the recording that they recorded from. So it sounded really bad, and um, it's uh, just something that uh, I have to deal with in the 21st century from the 20th century. So enjoy this episode for what it is. It is in much improved quality from before, so at least I could do that for you. So enjoy this episode uh, starring Tom Conway as the saint. Adventures of the Saint, starring Tom Conway. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor, Tom Conway, as... The Saint. Going. Going. Mr. Tapper? Yes. And you, of course, are Miss Kittred. Please come in. Thank you. It was awfully nice of you to let me come and see you. I suppose I sounded pretty hysterical on the phone. Now sit down, Miss Kittredge, and uh, tell me about it. Mr. Templer, my fiancé is going to be killed and no one will believe me. Hmm. Uh, why won't they believe you? Because they're men, and men know everything, especially policemen. And I'm just a hysterical girl who should go home and forget all about it and let him be killed. Well, uh, even though I'm a man, uh, 
phải nói chuyện với tụi nó Nói vô cười thì nghĩ thế Chứ bên ai cũng What are you doing the police won't help and you haven't got money for a private detective and, and Bill won't even help himself? No, he's a man named Simon Champlain and you tell him about it. Uh, what about Bill? He's Bill to others. He's an instructor and I'm Cheatham Military Academy. I'm a secretary of him. Cheatham? A large school? No, rather small. Bill and I are both employed by Major Jackson. He runs the school. And, uh, what makes you think Bill is in danger? Yesterday morning I found this on his desk. He refused to talk about it. He hey, let me do this, Mr. Well, it's just a... I'm sorry. Hmm. To William S. Carruthers, first lieutenant, infantry reserve, subject, finding a court's marshal. One. Having been duly tried this date by a general court for grave and serious offenses committed in violation of the Articles of War, Lieutenant Carruthers is hereby judged guilty. Two, it is the sentence of this court that Lieutenant Carruthers be remanded to custody until such time as punishment may be carried out. That punishment is death. Fated two days ago. You see? The punishment is death. I think you're worried about nothing, my dear. Boys at military school have to develop a slightly sadistic sense of humor. I thought it was that, too. Until last night. Bill and I were walking on the parade ground when there was a shot. A rifle shot. It just grazed him and knocked his hat off, but someone meant to kill him. It wasn't just an accident? Certainly it was an accident. Somebody writes a crazy letter to Bill telling him they're going to kill him, and, and then they shoot at him with a rifle, and, and everyone with some hysterical fit. Well? And Kittredge, your secretary. I see. 
Danger from what, gentlemen? From uh, flying bullets, Major. He received this letter yesterday and was shot at on the parade ground last night. Let me see. Having been duly tried this thing. me in order. Large is a little narrow, though. Mm. Any idea who might have sent that, Major? Or who shot it, rather? This is a matter of a G2, Templar, not a command matter at all. It's also G2. Where's he? Owing to our budget being in the hands of civilians, Templar, we don't have a G2. Try to run an efficient post without intelligence reports, Templar. Just try it sometime. Yes, then I have a free day, yeah. You sure you weren't with the 3rd Infantry? Uh, quite sure. Uh, Major, uh, this letter you just read, it uh, came from somewhere. And last night, a shot came from somewhere. Well, Emperor, I have 45 troops here under my command. I spared it all. I know good morale. There's the reason. Uh, what's it to sign off if Carruthers uh, is killed? <laughs> Senior line officers can take care of themselves. Have you talked to him yet? Uh, not yet, no. Well, then do so. Organize your activities, Emperor. SOP. Call on me at any time. You civilians are getting those better. Antietam Military Academy is first, last, and foremost in Democratic Institute. You send us the boy, we send you back. <laughs> Messing with us, Temple? Uh, not any more than I have to. Oh, we're eating with you. Uh, some other time, Major. I want to see Carruthers. Well, come around any time. Enlisted man's message for him. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, see you at the PX, Major. <laughs> Simon, I, I'd like you to know Bill. Bill, this is Simon Temple. I'm glad to know you, Temple. How do you do? I appreciate your coming out here, but Anne shouldn't. Do. You don't mind being shot at? Well, I... Please, sir. Temple, I don't question your motives. But Anne, I told you expressly to keep this thing to yourself. It's nothing. Nothing to me, but you're in terrible danger. Anne. Anne, would you mind if I talk with Temple alone just for a minute? Of course not, You'll you call me when you first? I'll call you in. Hello. I'll see you later. Of course, Anne. Templar, you're the saint, aren't you? Yes. Well, then I can I can trust you. Now, there might be something in this, Templar, in spite of what I said to Anne. I I don't quite know if this is it, but... Well, quite some time ago, I, I fell in love with the mother of one of the cadets here. He's the cadet captain, head of the class, Stephen Anderson. Are you and Mrs. Anderson's... No, uh, no, it didn't last. I don't want to excuse myself, but Vivian's a beautiful woman. She has too much money, too much leisure, too little maturity. She came here to see Stephen. That's how it started. It didn't last long. But, uh, you think Stephen found out? Well, he may have. And he's a peculiar kid, brilliant, neurotically attached to his mother in spite of the fact that she almost never finds time for him. Father died years ago. Kids that age, 14, they get funny ideas about things sometimes. Yes, I'd better have a talk with him. Would he be capable of uh, actually shooting at him? I don't know. I guess I deserved it. Any place else the letter may come from? Well, the... No. No, it's nothing serious. It's not important. Sure? Sure. All right. But I wouldn't go walking on the parade ground tonight, Carruthers. Not until this is cleared up. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, you'll find Stephen over in the cadet barracks across the road. And Templar, does Anne need to know? I won't tell her. Does that answer your question? I guess that's close enough, sir. Thanks. <laughs> 
that is, uh, well, uh, at ease. Uh, Stephen Anderson here? Present, sir. How are you, Stephen? My name's Simon Temper. Yes, sir. Uh, any place here we can, uh, talk in reasonable privacy? The company day room, sir, at the end of the barracks. Good. Lead the way. After you, sir. In here, sir. Fine. And Stephen, would you do me a favor and leave off a few of the sirs? Yes, sir. All right. Stephen, I'm going to ask you a few questions that uh, perhaps I have no business asking, but uh, I hope you'll answer. About uh, Bill Carruthers. Lieutenant Carruthers, sir. If he's not in the army, is he? That's his title, sir. All right. Do you have a grudge against him, Stephen? I... No, sir. You didn't write him a letter recently. I... Did Major Jackson send you? No, no, he didn't. Then I can't answer any questions, sir. I'm going to call on your mother, Stephen. Don't. I think she'll like it, but you won't. She... Yes, sir. Stephen, are you happy here? Yes, sir. Is that all, sir? I hope that's all, Stephen. <laughs> Yes. Mrs. Anderson? You might call me that, yes. Although that's some time ago. Can I have to stop it? My name is Simon Temper, Mrs. Oh, uh, it's too complicated, really, make it busy anymore. Sit down, won't you? Thank you. Simon Temper. You're the state, aren't you? On occasion. How interesting to meet you. With the, uh, stain, like a gem. Oh, no, thanks. I, I came about Stephen. Nothing's happened to you. Oh, no. I just wanted to know if you've seen him recently. Well, isn't it ridiculous, Simon, that I should have a son 14 years old? Astonishing. Uh, have you seen him recently? No, but he writes regularly, of course. He's very good about it. But you haven't seen him. Did you know that someone came very close to killing Bill Carruthers last night? Bill? Whatever for? The poor boy's a horrible dancer, the killing's a little extreme, but... Oh. You don't think it's Stephen because of Bill and I? I'm trying to find out. Has there been anything in Stephen's letters to indicate what he's thinking? No. No, I don't think so. The label they've been full of something big that's going to happen at the school, but he, he didn't say what. Certainly not. Well, not that. What was going to happen? Uh, did he give in a date? Tomorrow, I think. There's nothing. You know how children are. They get one thing on their mind, they can't get it out. Uh, some adults are the same way. Uh, just occasionally. You don't think I'm a very nice person, do you? You know something, Simon? I agree with you. All of a sudden, I agree with you. You really do? I don't know. I've been a hypocrite for so long, I don't even know myself if this is a change of heart or just a new approach. Sad. Well, let's not be sad, Tom. Let's have a good... Uh, excuse me. Yes? Who? Yes. Mr. Simon. You're sure? My hearing is so good, Simon, in spite of my age. Hello? Simon? Oh, Simon, I'm so glad I found you. Anne, how did you know I was here? I knew all about Bill and didn't request the call. He's gone. He's gone. Where? How long ago? I don't know. It 
keep looking, Anne. I'll be right there. It's not Stephen, is it, Simon? Bill's missing. And I hope it's not Stephen. But if it is, they young... It won't be, Simon. Stephen's a fine boy. He took out to his father. <laughs> Thank you for coming, Simon. Thank you. Any trace of Bill yet? No, no. I, I, I've been calling everywhere I could think of, but no luck. Why did he have to be so, so headstrong, Simon? Why did anyone else have to know anything but Bill? Why couldn't he stay in his room? Anne, Vivian spoke of hints in Stephen's letters that uh, something big was about to happen, something mysterious. Tomorrow. I've had a feeling that something was going to happen. A feeling of what? I don't know. I imagine it feels this way imprudent just before a jail break. The school is like a prison anyway. Good evening, Mr. Stanford. Good night. Palmer's moved. Major Jackson, have you seen Bill? He's gone. Gone? Well, he's got an off post pass, hasn't he? So long as he's here for revenue. Uh, we think Bill is in considerable danger, Major. I wonder if you'll help him have the parade down. Of course. Uh, Anne, better stay here close to the phone. All right, sir. Coming, Major? Good night. Always take a walk before tap. This is when I do my planning. Try our planning, Templar. The secret of any campaign. Uh, tell me about it as we go, Major. Uh, this is the right direction of the parade ground. Get ahead. You've got a bad marching step, Templar. I can get your basic rate. For the beaver patrol. Beaver? Beaver patrol? Major, if anything concerning the school or its personnel is happening tomorrow, You'd know about it? Tomorrow? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Footwalker inspects tomorrow. No, that's not my business. There seems to be an undercurrent of something here, Major. Something that's coming to a head tomorrow, whatever it is. Tomorrow? Well, there's no reason to worry about gorillas tonight, is there? Perhaps. I hope not. Yeah, let's break down. Have my flashlight, Denver? Thanks. We can start from this end and work for the. That's. End of a soldier's day. Glory, greatness. Last sound of years at night. Lonely and all his darkness. Major, look over there in the beam of the light. Brothers, come on. Shot through the head. He was a fine soldier, Timber. He died a soldier's death. Major, he was murdered. My commanding officer, the enemy will not escape. Well, what'd you make of it, Lieutenant? I don't know. I don't know, say. Somebody killed Carruthers last night, but who? Everybody's got an alibi. I don't see Jeff mixed up with it. I see the husband and wife killing sometimes, no, but... Want to have another go at the two kids, Lieutenant? Yeah, might as well. They look scared. They look like they're covering up. They will not celebrate, so it's... Here in this place, Thompson. Something beneath the surface. You can see from the kids. Almost 
uh, unbearable tension. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the kids were wagged up to start with. Is that for us, sir? Ah, sit down, Anderson. This is a suggestion. Now, after all the story again. Brothers was found at 11 last night. He was shot around 10. Where were you? Anderson. He was with me, sir. I'm not asking you. Anderson, where were you? With cadet duty, sir. Practicing close order drill. Close order drill. Chandler? Stephen, you wrote to your mother about something happening today, something big. What was it? I don't remember, sir. Jimmy? I don't remember either, sir. I don't know anything about it. You two say you were near Major Jackson's house at 10 last night. He was home? You're sure? Yes, sir. What do you think of Major Jackson, Stephen? He's a great man. Very great man. He's a military genius. Someday you'll... He's a great man. Someday I'll what? Okay, sir. Jimmy? Yes, sir. Anything you want to tell us? This isn't just a military school compliment, I don't know. A man from here. I don't know anything, sir. Oh, that's all right. Lieutenant? I'll beat it, Jess. But don't leave the ground. You know we'll find it. Yes, sir. Yes, Well, I don't like it, sir. These kids aren't like kids. They're yeses and noses. And they know something. When was that screwy letter? Somebody said it. And there's that feeling that something about to happen. Yes, we're sitting on something, Lieutenant. Something so close we can't see it, or so strange we can't believe it. Uh, fired test shots out of all the cadet rifles, sink. I'm going down to ballistics now to watch the results. That's good, Lieutenant. Hey, Cat, come along. Might as well. But this case doesn't rest on the deformities of the bullet function. It rests on the deformities of a human mind. And uh, they are not so easily discovered. Yeah. There is no test for that but time, sir. Yeah. Let's hope we have enough of it. Simon, I'm coming to you. Thank you, Virginia. Oh, I'm so glad you came, Simon. Oh, don't get frightened. I'm glad you came because I've been just sitting here all day taking a good look at my son. It's been terrifying. You haven't seen Stephen? I saw him this morning, but he wouldn't let me come out. What did you say to you, Simon? Yes, sir. Oh, no, sir. Made it a little difficult to tell what was on his mind. Stephen has been unhappy. I'm sorry for Boys should have a home, father. I packed him off to a school I didn't know anything about because I was too busy to care for him. Is it just what? Did you? To top it all, I couldn't even keep my hot little hands off his instructor. Not very good. Poor student. Poor word. Vivian, I wanted to see those letters from Stephen you spoke of. There may be a clue there. I got another one today, Simon. I'm looking yesterday. Couldn't make much sense out of it. What did you say? Oh, a long rambling thing about how the cadets of the Virginia Military Institute left their classes to march off the battle in the Civil War and turn the tide of battle for the South. Now, where did you get these things? Go on, what else did you say? Oh, it was incoherent almost. 
all about the corruption of our society, our enemies within, and how the country has been waiting for a strong man to show them the way. Who's been talking to him? Lost, rejected, confused boys looking for the father, a hero. Simon! Never to tell somebody follow it. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to be a plan. And this assurance that it'll work. Come on. Yes, I'm school. I only hope we'll be on time. We've got to be on time. Simon. Oh. Hello, Anne. Hello, Mrs. Anderson. Where are the boys, Anne? They're, they're all on the parade grounds with full packs and equipment and rifles. There's a, a special inspection. Yes, very special. Anne, would you please phone the police? The police? Yes, and wait here for them. Vivian, I need you, but it might be dangerous. I don't care. I don't care. Okay, come on. Dismiss your company. Yes, no, I must have a talk with you. No, 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 I can't talk to you now. Don't you see, there isn't time. I've trained these boys for months, and I've never said because of me. You understand? Because of me. I don't think I'm mad. That's what Carolus calls. So you'll have to kill him. Well, he threatened to expose our plans to the enemy, and I have to obey us. I've had someone interfere with the dream of my life. The dream is over, Major. Oh, no, no, I've got troops. I've got an army. You have no troops. He's a boy. The army of Northern Virginia was made up of boys like these. They lit the best that Grant could throw. Open your eyes, Major. This isn't 1861. This is 1951. Exactly. The times are right for a man on horseback. Positively, you gentlemen. This country doesn't need a man on horseback. Pour out, boys. Stand back, my right. That's what I've been building. Here's something. There are 30 rifles trained on you. Now, Sanders. Come out here, Vivian. Call Stephen. Stephen, my spare draw! Stephen, come on! Go to all! Go to the men! Listen to me! I promise you that we succeed! This country is waiting for you! Don't listen to anybody else! They'll tell you lies about me! Look at him, boys. See him for what he is. No hero, a dangerous fanatic. A man with a sick mind. Put down your gun. All right! I think so patient with you! They aren't going to fire, Major. Take the boys back to the barracks. Yes, sir, Mr. Oh, no. We were really going to follow them. Oh, no. they shot anybody, really. I don't know what got into it. It's time for living, Jimmy. While the schemes have been believed in by older and wiser people. Come along, Nathan. Perhaps. Perhaps. I. They're almost there. 
I guess we'll never really know. You have been listening to another transcribed adventure of The Saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. And now, here is our star, Tom Conway. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention to a very important thing? I say it's important because during that minute, someone somewhere is going to interest in an automobile action. Unbelievable as it seems, American traffic accidents exactly close more than one category every minute. Last year, 32,000 were killed. One million were injured. And in almost every single case, it was discovered that one or more violations of the traffic law were involved. That's the fact I want you to remember. The fact that a moment's carelessness, a moment's flaunting of the law might bring tragedy to you. So many of us believe that traffic accidents always haven't come to help. Last year, systems thought that way, and so did today. Tomorrow, perhaps, there will be neighbors. If only we can hear The traffic accidents are a of every one of us. So, obey the laws of the world. Wearing your driver or pedestrian, guard against the danger. Please drink and care. Remember that it can happen to you. And to care. The care you take may save the body. And that life may be your own. This is Tom Conway inviting you to join us again next week at the same time for another exciting adventure this morning. Good night.
A corpse that wouldn't stay dead. A pistol with a silencer on it and a fortune in a black satchel. Spelled death for the big city boys when they finally got together in lonesome Arizona. Population, 802. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Lonesome Reunion. At 8,000 feet on a clear afternoon, you can see enough Arizona real estate to become an authority on the subject. And as I huddled around a circle of window aboard an American Airlines flagship and gaped like a two-weeks-with-pay vacationer at the carpet of sand, stone, and cactus unrolling a slow inch at a time below, I was impressed. Also, I was thinking about a job which was providing both the switch and scenery and two crisp $100 bills, less the cost of a round-trip ticket from L.A. to the capital city of Phoenix. But then, at the thought of money, I stopped sightseeing and started to think about the work ahead and how easy it had sounded that morning in my office. When Kay Gordon, who was something pretty and blonde, but slightly tarnished for 28, had hired me, all in one breath. Marlowe, my brother Joe Gordon is in a room at the Granada Court Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. In one hand, he no doubt has his usual smelly cigar. In the other, a small suitcase filled with a mess of papers, all legal, all proper. You fly there, pick up the suitcase, fly back for that $200 cash. Yes or no? Yes, on one condition. The papers, do I get to see them? If I look, I go. All right, you look. Good, I go. Goodbye. That was the way it had started an hour after breakfast. Lunch was alone and at the airport, then it would wait until I'd seen Mr. Joe Gordon, a man who was willing to pay a lot for a little. My plane dropped out of the sky over Phoenix gently at 3. At 3.15, I was in room 111 of the Granada Hotel and only 36 smelly inches away from the usual cigar. The man behind it was heavy, pale, and maybe 40. And like his sister, Joe Gordon was overbearing in a hurry. This, Marlowe, is the bag. These, the papers. Stocks, bonds, and mortgages. In themselves, worthless to anyone else. They're non-negotiable. But as information to my competitors, they're priceless. Satisfied? More or less. Meaning what? Exactly what is your line, Mr. Gordon? Oh, I'm a broker. One who bets on long shots. When they come in, I don't like to split with the boys who sit on their hands. Mm. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, I've got some time to kill before I fly back. Do I take the bag now or later? You take the bag now, Marlowe. Okay. And uh, don't let go of it until you're with my sister in L.A. I'm paying you money to stay away from my enemies, not to shop for trinkets. Oh. Oh, and uh, incidentally, my enemies also play rough. So watch your step and act smart. Real smart. I still had two hours to kill when Gordon locked the bag and handed it to me after dropping the key in his pocket. So I decided to take a room there at the Granada Hotel, shave, shower, and stretch. The sleepy clerk in the lobby was not in a hurry, nor did he hear anything I said the first time. So when I finally got to my suite on the second floor, which had as much elbow room as the inside of a lifesaver, 30 of the idle minutes were already gone. I locked and bolted the door, checked all the windows carefully, and then peeled off my shirt broke out my shave master and reached for the knob on the bathroom door. But I never made it. Because as the door swung open, I caught a glimpse of a fist the size of a cantaloupe starting from my jaw. Oh! 
Hey, stay oh. right there, Buster. The first time I swing, the second time I shoot, and I do both good. Equal nice, huh? Everything all figured out ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, but it ain't very hard, Marlowe. Especially when the guy you're after shouts it all to a desk clerk. My era. Yeah. Which leaves just the three of us. Real cozy like. Three. You, me, and 120 grand here in this bag. You're way off pace, brother. This bag's got papers in it, nothing more. They belong to a businessman. <laughs> I said something? Yes, you're very funny. Look, Buster, Joe Gordon's no more a businessman, and his real name is Joe Gordon. So after I leave, you go back to Sam Dietrich in room 111 and tell him that Marty Stopka says thanks. For what? For the $120,000 I've been waiting two long years for. And also tell him and Gigi Ganther, who might still be around, that Stopka had it all figured, like you say, Marlowe, ahead of time. I don't follow you, bud. You're not supposed to. Just turn around, face the wall, and listen carefully. You tell Sam Dietrich that I knew he'd pull something like this just as soon as he got back into circulation. You got that? Yeah, yeah. Word for word, Stopka. Good. Now all you have to do is remember. Marty Stopka said remember it. He put that cantaloupe with fingers in the small of my back and shoved hard. By the time I got to my feet again, both he and the black bag were gone. That made Joe Gordon or Sam Dietrich my best bet. So I took the stairs to the ground floor fast and raced for the end of the corridor in room 111. But when I threw the unlocked door open, I found something I hadn't counted on. A curtain flapping in the breeze of an open window and nothing more. The desk drawers, the closet, the bureau empty. And on an end table next to the telephone, a bus schedule unmarked. At that, I was beginning to get very mad at a private detective with public patsy named Philip Marlowe. Then the telephone rang, and when I answered it, the operator said that she had a long-distance call for Joe Gordon. I said, thanks, I'd take it. Hello? Sam, this is Kay. I... Marlowe? Yeah, honey, Joe Marlowe is in Brother Gordon, remember? Oh, I can explain all that, Marlowe. Oh, sure, sure, baby, but not now, later. Later, after you've had a chance to think up a few more lies. All right, all right. So I didn't tell you the whole story. What's the difference? Did you get the bag? I did, but I didn't get to keep it very long. Something ugly named Stopka wanted either it or my life, so I made a quick decision. Stopka has the bag. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, isn't it, though? What? One thing, baby. I'm the decoy with suitcase for some kind of shenanigan that's wrapped around 120 grand, which you and Sam Dietrich have. And there's a trio in the act. Namely, Sam Dietrich, Marty Stopka, and one Gigi Ganther. Gigi? Marlowe, have you seen Gigi? Uh, have you, Marlowe? Maybe yes, maybe no. Why don't you come clean? Admit you're happy that Stopka got the suitcase from me while Sam beat it out of an open window. That my part of the job is over with. Come on, baby, talk. All right. I'll make it short and to the point. You got $200 for doing nothing. Out of that, 60-odd went for an airplane ticket. The rest is yours, right? Go on. There's no need to, Marlowe. I'm finished, and so are you. So why don't you just be a good fella and keep the change? So long, sucker. <laughs> Kay Gordon hung up, I slammed the phone down, counted ten twice, and went back to the unhappy business of getting mad at Marlowe. But again, I was interrupted. This time, it was a newspaper, the Phoenix Herald, sticking far enough out of the wastebasket under the telephone to expose the dateline, which made it exactly a week old. I picked it up and saw the two inches of story circled in pencil and slug, five released from state penitentiary. Ah, Sam Dietrich, 41 of Los Angeles who was arrested in Lonesome, Arizona for the armed robbery of a general store in February 1947, also was released today. Now everything was beginning to add, with one high-priced exception. Very few general stores in towns called Lonesome keep 120000 bucks in the till, 
even on a busy day. So I headed for the office of the Phoenix Herald in the chance that I could learn something about the cash involved from newspapers that were two years better than one week old. Thirty minutes later, I was in the back shop of the Herald receiving facts willingly supplied by a sandy-haired liner-type operator with a sad face who had never heard the word forget. That's right, mister. It was the second national bank of land company here in town. Uh, held up at 1.10 p.m. February 7, 1947, by three men who took $120,000 in unmarked cans, 20s, and 50s. One was badly wounded and running gunfight, but they all got away clean. No arrests, no suspects? Well, other than the usual rigmarole of trying to pin the job on every two-bit stick-up man hauled in the next six months, no. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No, thanks. I don't think... Say, wait a minute. Lonesome, Arizona, that unmarked bus schedule... Tell me, do you happen to know where something called Lonesome is, and if so, how a guy could get there if he doesn't have a car? Sure. It's 87 miles west of here, and the bus will do the trick. But not anymore today. Oh. Uh, the only bus left an hour ago. And yeah, now, young fella, you tell me something. What in Sam Hill is Lonesome and a bus departure got to do with a bank robbery was pulled two years ago? Where I stand right now, Dad, I can't say. But when I get to Lonesome, ask me again. I may have the answer for you. <laughs> I was 30 minutes renting a car and an hour and 30 minutes getting to Lonesome. Population, 802. I drove without seeing anything that could possibly be mistaken for Sam Dietrich. And I was about to turn back when I saw something that brought my right foot down hard on the brake. It was a brand new green Nash standing outside a motel. California license plate. I got out of my car and got a look at the registration card wrapped around the steering wheel. It said Catherine E. Gordon. Hotel only had three cabins that showed any light. The first belonged to the manager and the second to Kay. Close to an open window, I saw the man Kay was talking to. He was an ex-convict and part-time broker named Sam Dietrich. All right, all right. So Marlowe knows he was set up for Marty Stopka. Who cares? We're here and so far Stopka isn't. And if and when he does show, we'll be gone with the real black bag safe in our hands. Yes, but what about Gigi, Sam? I told you Marlowe mentioned his name. And I told you to forget it. Marlow must have been swinging in the dark. Gigi can't be alive, Kay. He was badly hurt when Stopka and I got clear of the bank. But why wasn't his body found? I don't know, Kay. I've told you that a thousand times. Now, now, look, honey. Why don't you just relax and think of us a little, huh? Gigi's dead, baby. There's only you and me. Sam, you know how I feel about that. I love Gigi. The only reason I'm helping you, I don't want anything to do with this money. I only want to know for sure about Gigi. Okay, okay. Hey, did you get a line on Leland Mills, the name that was on that mailbox two years ago? Uh, yes, yes. He owns the place and lives there alone. Uh-huh. A, a once upon a time small ranch on the last block in town, coming apart at the scenes. Mm-hmm. What about Mills himself? He's an old duffer, maybe 50. Lives close to the fireside, day in and day out. <laughs> Good. That means I can handle him without any trouble. And now, look, baby, it's uh, seven now. At nine, this town will be fast asleep, and at ten, I'll take care of everything. So, uh, why don't you just curl up there on the couch and think about nice things? Oh, nice things like what? Well, like the money I hid at Leland Mills' place five hours after the boys and I took that bank. (laughs) The $120,000 that's soon going to be back here with me where it belongs. Dad, I took my cue and left because one Leland Mills was a man to be forewarned while 10 o'clock was still three hours away. I was ten minutes finding his place, which was on the edge of town, 
and another two locating the doorbell, which was the kind you pulled to start a bunch of jingling inside. It was three pulls later before the door creaked slowly open, and what had to be Leland Mills stood in front of me. He was shaggy, gray hair curling on the sides of his neck, a face with a thousand crisscrossed wrinkles and dirty old clothes, everything I'd expected with one exception. Gripped firmly in both hands and pointed directly at my head was a long, long rifle. Who are you? Uh, Mr. Mills? Maybe. Well, I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, also someone who knows that there's $120,000 in cash hidden here on your grounds. $120,000? To the penny, yes. Two years ago, Mr. Mills of Phoenix Bank was robbed by three toughs named Dietrich Stopka and G.G. Ganther. G.G.? That's a queer name. It's not important, old man, but this is. Now, somehow or other, that stolen money was hidden here, in or around your place. Mm. And tonight, one of those men is due back to collect. That, of course, means trouble for you. You think we should call the law? No, no, not yet. If we play it smart, we can get the dough spotted first and at least one of the three. All right, Mr. Marlowe. If you're sure of what you're saying, I only hope you are. Oh, I'm sorry about this gun here. I don't like poachers on my land. Yeah, we all have our pet peeves. Now, Mr. Mills, I want you to sit tight till I get back. And no matter what happens, don't open that door for anyone. Have you got that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Where are you going? To town. To check on the only two things that can possibly give us any unexpected trouble. One, a nasty man named Marty Stopka, and the other, a guy I've never even seen. The elusive Mr. G.G. Ganther. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, that elusive phantom voice will be back on CBS's great show, Sing It Again, tonight... And the prize for identifying him has now climbed to a value of $24,500. Yes, for music, suspense, and sensational prizes, don't miss the Sing It Again show tonight over most of these same CBS stations. And now, with Gerald Moore starred, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Lonesome Reunion. Leland Mills standing in the doorway and worried my way back to town. If Stopka and Gigi Gantha had no more trouble getting lonesome than I did, a reunion about as quiet as a truckload of hot dynamite was due to take place any minute. I passed the motel where Kay and Dietrich had holed up and saw that her car had been moved into the stall between cabins and draped with a blanket to hide its California place. So they were thinking along the same line that I was. At the hub of town, I parked and started to case the lively spots on Main Street which took me all of ten minutes at a slow walk. But a short side-of-the-mouth conversation with a couple of resident sports revealed that the local underground stemmed from the Red Dog Cafe, a warped wood two-story wiki up on the one side street in town. It was operated by a hard-bitten blonde, 160 pounds of western motif, complete with Stetson, red flannel shirt, hickok belt, blue jeans, and the name, Flora. She sat at a table at the back of the bar room, lending a cynical ear to nobody else but my old pal, Stopka. I walked up behind him, and when he turned around, I hung one on him. A good one! Hey! You <laughs> jackass! What do you think you're doing? Sorry, Flora, nothing personal. Now, that's enough! Now, stop it, you hear me? No rough hustling in my joint. Come on, handsome, I mean you. Me? Why, Flora, how can you say that? I just came in to ask my old pal here some questions, that's all. Here we go, pal. Come on, sit up in that chair. Okay, okay, let me alone. See, Flora? It's the only way Stopka here knows how to start a conversation. 
Bring him another beer, will you? His old one got spilled. Sure, bright boy. When he see that you do tourists leave your beefs outside next time. Now, look, stop you. I want to know what happened two years ago on that highway out here. You guys split up, didn't you? You better talk, Stopka. All right, we split up. The heat was on bad, and Gigi was half dead already from a cop slug in his back. Dietrich had all the dough, right? What do you think? I left him and Gigi off outside of town. I took the car to try to suck the cops away from him. We were supposed to meet later. You kept going to save your own hide, didn't you? Certainly. It's going to pay off, sucker. You'll see. Uh-huh. Since the money was never found, you figured Dietrich hid it around here, and he's coming back to dig it up. Is that it? Keep guessing, Shamus. Maybe we ought to loosen your jaw again, stop that. Oh, you do. Now turn loose of him, handsome, and by Sadie, I'll plug you. Well, a real genuine 44. What museum just swiped that from, Flora? Never mind. Got a legal right to defend the peace and quiet of my joint, and after 22 years in this dodge, I know how to do it. Now, I asked you nice once, now I'm telling you. You, yeah. get out. That back door there. Hey, sure, I'll go, sister. Thanks for nothing. Hey, wait a minute, Flora. Don't let that lug get away. Shut up. Now, you sit down right there and count up to 50. Then you leave by the front, quietly. Okay, you win. One, two, three. Flora, look out. He's back. Huh? What? Sorry, Eddie. Uh, you buzzard mate. I'll leave this cannon on the back steps. So long, Flora. back door and into an alleyway between the shacks. Stopka was still in sight but walking fast, and when I took after him, he saw me and started to run. There was a hard, flat sound like someone striking wet sand with a hammer. <laughs> Stopka faltered and lurched up on his toes as if he'd suddenly changed his mind about running. The same instant on a wall, even with him, I saw the shadow of a man holding a pistol with a long, awkward barrel. The hard, flat sound came again. Stopka curled up on himself and fell. <laughs> And the shadow slid off the wall, disappeared. I ran for the wounded man, but by the time I got to him, there was no trace of the gunman. I rolled Stopka over. He was hit hard, slipping away fast. Silence. Gigi always used a silence. Punk Gigi. You're dead, huh? You wise guys never know when to quit, do you? You're in real trouble now, handsome. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't do this. Come, I couldn't hear the shots, a silencer. Yeah, that's right. Trademark of a guy named Gigi Ganther. All I saw of him was his shadow on that wall there. Say, what kind of law have you got in this town, Flora? None. Except the highway patrol. They stop in every night. Okay, call him. Get him over here. This guy's Marty Stopka, wanted for a bank job, nearly two years old. No kidding. Who are you, his trainer? I'm a private detective who's got no business here, except I don't like to be pushed around. Now, listen, do you know Leland Mills' place at the edge of town? Sure. Well, you get the cops out to Mills' place by 10.30, do you understand? That's where the big attraction's going to be, if I can keep Gigi in a silencer from interfering again. Now, let me down, beautiful. I won't let you down, handsome. For a city boy, you're all right. I stuck to a back road and drove with my lights out until I was a good, safe distance beyond Leland Mills Ranch. Then I hid the car in a dry gully and walked back. The house was dark and still, and I thought once of what might have happened to Mills if Gigi had gotten there ahead of me. I kept in the shadows and worked my way across the yard to the back door. Who's there? Marlo. Open up. I was beginning to worry. It's pretty near 10 o'clock. Yeah, I know, I know. Seen anybody so far? No. Nope, not a soul. Been watching close, too. 
Did you find the men at GG, that Stopka? Yeah, Stopka's dead and his killer's due to show up here any time now. Oh. We're going to have our hands full, I... Wait a minute, is that a car? Sure sounds like one. Yep, there, you can just make it out. Turned in down by the covert and stopped. Yeah, I think a man got out. Yeah, yeah, there he goes, across the field there behind your shed. It's Dietrich. I'm going out now, Mills. You stay here. No, I'm going too. That, that fellow's heading right for my water tank. All right, he's heading for your water tank. Don't get excited. You'll tip our mitt. Hmm. I get this, Mills. You've got to stay here and watch for Gigi. He's bound to show up, and when he does, you better have that rifle of yours handy because he's a killer. Do you understand? Yep. Sure, I understand. Don't worry, Marlowe. I'll keep my eyes open. Don't you worry about a thing. started across the yard, I, I knew I was getting myself out on a nice, long limb. Leland Mills was about as reliable as William Tell with their hiccups, and the apple was on my head. It was too late to back up, so I skirted the barn, stayed below the crest of a low rise, moved toward the elevated water tank until I heard a shovel biting dirt. I got a comfortable grip on my gun and headed up over the rise to where I could see. Yeah, it was Dietrich, all right. He was bent over under the tank and working on a hole as if his life depended on it. He didn't even look up until I was almost on top of him. Who is it? Who's there? Who is it? Me, Mr. Gordon. Marlowe. Marlowe? How did you get here? Wasn't easy, Sammy boy. But I had to come and apologize for losing your precious bag full of waste paper. You sure picked a dangerous time to show, sucker. You were fired once. Too bad you can't take a hint. Uh-huh. And being tagged as a patsy is lousy for my business, Dietrich. You should have thought of that. Just leave your hands on that shovel handle, Sam, and keep on digging. Maybe I'll let you take a peek at that 120 grand before I turn you both over to the police. Go on, dig! No! no not so fast, Marlowe. Mills, I told you to stay in the... Hey. hey. That's quite a pistol. Don't move. Neither one of you. I'll kill you if you move. You, Marlowe, drop your gun. Drop it. <laughs> oh, this is where it's been all the time. A hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I've looked everywhere. Every day for two whole years, but I I never thought of looking here under a water tank. You mean you knew where the money was all the time? You lie, you lie. I'm the only one that knew that. Oh, no. One night, two years ago, I heard a noise in my barn. It was a man groaning. I looked in and I saw him. He was wounded. And I saw you when you come back from burying the money. I overheard the whole thing. You wouldn't tell him where you'd hidden it. You said you'd never tell anybody. But I was sure I could find it. And I looked everywhere except... Yeah, Mills, everywhere except here, under the water tank, where you buried Gigi's body after you killed him. And with his own gun at that. Oh, no, I didn't kill him. Dietrich here did. I only buried him so nobody would find out that him and Dietrich had stopped at my place. I almost went crazy looking for that money, but now I know where it is, and I'm going to have it. Well, you fool, you don't think I'd come out here with nothing but a shovel, do you? A friend of mine is right behind you with a gun in her hand. Now, come on, drop yours, Rube. <laughs> come on, come on, drop it. All right. Hey. That's an old trick, Dietrich. <laughs> Let him have it. Shoot, Kay, shoot! Didn't work, did it? I knew I'd have to kill you sometime anyway if you ever came back, so... You fool, Mills. I suppose that makes me next. Yep, Mr. Marlowe. I think it does. Think again, Mr. Mills. Who's that? Kay! You were there all the time, and Dietrich wasn't bluffing. Oh, I love you, Kay, baby, and I'll take the gun now, Mills. Turn it loose. Come on, I'll break your arm. Ah. There. That's better. 
I'll look after this gun until the police get here. And uh, look after this one, too, Marlowe. I haven't got the courage to use it anyway. I couldn't even shoot Sam Dietrich with it. He's the one I wanted to use it on. Why? Because of Gigi? Yeah, because he killed Gigi and lied to me. I promised to help Dietrich only because I figured all three of them would show up here. Sam, Stopka, and... and Gigi. That way I hoped they'd find him again. You were right, baby. All three of them did show up. Only this time they finished their job. For good. It was 10.30 on the nose when we got back to the house... And the highway patrol had just pulled up, so the question and answer period started, and by the time it was over, all the field work finished up four hours plus had gone by. It took some fast conversation, a lot of promises to stay handy, but finally, Kay was left with me. After all, her only real mistake had been falling in love with the wrong kind of a guy. When the last patrol car drove away, the desert was suddenly very still. The stars were small and sharp in the clear sky. The air was cold. Maybe that was why Kay Gordon trembled. Marlowe, I'm sorry about all this. I got you into it, remember? Mm-hmm. You also got me out of it, Kay. Well, I can forget about Gigi. Now that I know for sure what happened. And all because of a jerk named Leland Mills. No, Mills was a desperate guy, Kay. After he buried Gigi, he just about went nuts trying to find the money. When he finally realized Dietrich was the only one who could lead him to it, he shot Stopkin and would have killed anybody else. Keep him from interfering with Dietrich until he uncovered the hiding place. You know, in a way, Marlowe, it was a horrible trick of fate. They both picked the same place to bury things. Not really. Mills and Dietrich had the same jobs to do, under the same conditions. They each had to bury something in a hurry and in the dark. So both of them picked a spot where the ground was soft and one that was clearly marked at the same time, under the water tank. Yeah. And it... Marlo, I'm kind of scared. I don't like this place. This spooky little town. It's the end of nowhere. Yeah. I wouldn't be caught dead here myself. Let's go, baby. I walked Kay to a car, started her safely on her way. So long, sucker. She waved once, then drove down the road and out of sight without looking back. Soon even the sound of the motor was gone. A long night and a strange reunion. And now two lonely lights were the only sign of life in lonesome Arizona. I stood on the empty highway for a few minutes and listened to the immense quiet of the desert. Then I went back to my rented car and headed for Phoenix and a plane for home. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Joan Banks, Edgar Barrier, Virginia Gregg, Jeff Chandler, Bill Boucher, and Jack Crucian. The special music is by Richard O'Rant. <laughs> 
Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a weird racket that mushroomed in a world of gaudy canvas. And the man with purple hair, the inquisitive midget, and the lady with strong hands each played a part. But all that was only a sideshow when death got into the act. Across the nation, communities and the parents of Boy Scouts are observing Boy Scout Week, agreeing with the boys themselves that adventure, that's scouting. Now stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. You driveling old idiot. What did you do with it? I, I'm not going to tell you. Oh, be careful. Shut up, Therese. We've got to find out what he did with that copybook. We've... What's the matter? Look. He's dead. Dead? You killed him. Don't be stupid. He... He just died. There's no one can prove anything. Just keep your mouth shut and help me find out what he did with the copybook. Well, well, well. Somebody sends me a copybook through box 13. Now I wonder why. to Box 13 and Dan Holliday's newest adventure, The Sad Night. It was just a child's copybook. And on the front cover was the name Marina Layton and a date, the year 1930, written in a childish, scrawled handwriting. I riffled through the pages. There was nothing of interest, at least. That's the way it looked then. But Susie thought differently. Maybe it's some kind of a code, Mr. Holliday. Like one to a buried treasure. Susie, with your imagination and my typewriter, we could go places. Well, gee, the Count of Monte Woolley found a buried treasure. That's Monte Cristo, Susie. Two different people. Well, they both had beards. Oh, look. Huh? What's that? It's a letter to Box 13. Listen. Box 13. A day or so ago, you may have received a child's copybook in the mail. If you did, I should appreciate it if you'd bring it to the address below. Yours truly, Therese Layton. Hmm. Let me see that, Susie. Here. 6821 Lakeshore Boulevard. Hmm. Swanky neighborhood. Are you going to take it back, Mr. Holliday? Oh, yes, Susie. If only to see how the other half lives. So I went to 6821 Lakeshore Boulevard. I tossed the copybook in the back seat of my car and it bounced on the floor. Maybe I was thinking about anything but the book, for when I rang the doorbell of the big house, I, I suddenly remembered I'd left the book in the car. I just about started back down after it when the door opened. Yes? I'm looking for Teresa Layton. 
I'm Mrs. Layton. And you? Holiday. Dan Holiday. I'm sorry, box 13. Oh, oh of course. Uh, please come in, Mr. Holiday. In the library, please. Thank you. Won't you sit down, Mr. Holiday? Thanks very much. It's very kind of you to come all this way to return the book. You see, it belongs to my little girl, and I suppose she sent the book to you in, well, mischievously. Your little girl? Yes, Marina. <laughs> Sometimes I think she's a problem child. Oh, really? How old is she, Miss Layton? Um, seven. Did she tell you she sent the book to Box 13? Well, no, as a matter of fact, she wouldn't say. Then her father found a newspaper with an advertisement cut from it. And? We got hold of a paper with the same date and compared the page. Nice detective work, Mrs. Layden. I suppose all this uproar over a child's book seems, well, stupid, doesn't it? Oh, no, 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 not at all. But there's one question I'd like to ask. Y yes, Mr. Holliday? You say uh, Marina's seven years old? That's right. Why? There's a date in the book, 1930. It seems to have been written in the same hand as the rest. That date would, uh, it would make her quite a big little girl, wouldn't it? I, I, oh, she put down that date, I suppose, well, not thinking. Oh, yes, of course. Where is she now, Mrs. Layton? She's dead, Mr. Holliday. Huh? Mr. Holliday, this is my husband, Carl. How do you do? I'm very happy to know you, Mr. Holliday. Do you have the book? You get right to the point, don't you? Mr. Holliday... Our daughter Marina is dead. We want the book merely for sentimental reasons. Well, I could understand that if your wife hadn't... Well... Lied to you? Bluntly, yes. <laughs> Therese, dear, will you excuse us? Yes, yes, sir. I'll be upstairs. My wife isn't well, Mr. Holliday. It's not an easy thing for me to say, but she imagines our daughter is still alive. Look, Mr. Layton, if I'd ever written a story with as many holes in it as yours... I'd be laughed out of the writing game. What do you mean? Your wife says Marina sent me the book. Yet you say Marina's dead. You know, you two should get together. All right, Mr. Holliday. How much do you want for the book? Oh, now we're getting someplace. What's it worth to you? Five hundred. Oh, that's a lot of money for a child's copybook. You asked how much and I told you. Now, may I have the book? I don't think so. It's worth nothing to you, Mr. Holliday. Believe me, it's worth absolutely nothing to you. All right, maybe I'm just curious. Tell me why you want the book and maybe we'll do business. I can't tell you. Or you won't tell me, is that it? I want that book. Now. I haven't got it with me. You're lying. All right, search me. I haven't got it with me. I forgot it. You're going to be difficult. Look. The book was sent to Box 13, obviously not by you, your wife, or your daughter. You found out it was sent when you traced my end, right? All right, that means someone else sent it to me. I'll return the book when I find out who and why. Mr. Holliday, I'm going to get that book. All right, all right, we'll play a game. Book, 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 who's got the book? Now, goodbye, Mr. Layton. Goodbye, Mr. Holliday. You can find your way out, I hope. I think so. Oh, any time you want to tell me the reason behind all this, we may be able to do business. I think we'll do business, Mr. Holliday. Later. I left, and when I got home, I spent the rest of the day and most of the evening trying to figure out why anyone would be so anxious to get hold of the book. It was filled with a kid's scrawling handwriting, sums in addition, problems in subtraction, alphabets... Then I 
I came to one page and stopped. It was filled with strange, weird-looking figures, as a kid would try to draw human beings. But there was something about them that didn't look like a kid's work. They were grotesque, almost fiendish faces and distorted, twisted bodies. And underneath were three words in Spanish, La Noche Triste, The Sad Night. The words were scrawled, too, but somehow they were different from the rest of the book. I, I kept turning back to that page, wondering, trying to connect something in my mind with those figures in the book. And I must have dozed off because the next thing I knew, it was three in the morning. I turned off my light, lay back in bed. Then uh, I was getting company unexpected, and I wasn't in the mood to entertain well, 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 what a wonderful thing a skeleton key is, like the magic words, open sesame. Somebody was looking for something, and it wasn't Easter eggs on the White House lawn. I waited, and then... Looking for something, bud? Whoever it was didn't wait for the floor show. I turned on the light. He'd grabbed the book, but he had left a knife behind. One that I picked up with a handkerchief. If there were fingerprints, it would introduce me to the gent. And Kling could do me that favor. Got any idea who it was, Holiday? No, I haven't, Kling. We had our waltz in the dark. Oh, it must have been romantic. Oh, yes, yes, I was overcome. Look, can you get prints off that knife handle? Seems to me you could pick an easier way of meeting people. Oh, I like the hard way, Makes for lasting friendships. Look, did he try to knife you? Well, I don't think he was doing KP with it. Why was he after you? He wasn't. Oh, I see. He breaks in at three in the morning. You surprise him, he pulls a knife on you. But he wasn't after you. It was just a social call, or maybe he was a visiting nurse. Kling, will you see about those prints? Yeah. If you'll prefer charges. Maybe, but uh, more important, he took something I want back. What? A child's copybook. A child... You know, Holiday, the more I see of you in this Box 13 gimmick you run, the more I believe in elves and pixies. Why did you have a child's copybook? I'm learning to write. You're going to keep this all to yourself, huh? Till I find out what it's all about. Okay. Well, from what you say about the cookie who disturbed your Betty by this morning, he might have a record. In that case, you can tell me who he is. You don't want me to pick him up? No, I'd rather have the pleasure. You see, he hung one on my chin. He hung one out here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Come back in an hour. <laughs> oh, Mr. Holliday. Gee, I've been trying to get in touch with you all morning. I was at headquarters, Susie. Oh, what'd you do? Oh, no, don't jump to conclusions. Why were you trying to get in touch? Look. Huh? When did this come? This morning. I picked up Box 13 mail at the Star Times, and that note was in it. Mm-hmm. Well, as they say in the books, Susie, the plot thickens. In fact, it's so thick now, I can't see a thing. How'd you get that bruise on your chin? I shaved with a baseball bat this morning. Oh. Well, are you going to meet Marina Layton? Yeah, that's what she asked me to do in her letter. So if you want me, I'll be at... At where she says, the lobby of the Camden Hotel. <laughs> So I got to the lobby of the Camden Hotel. It wasn't hard to find Marina Layton. She was 
as dressed as she said she'd be. I took a good look before walking over to her. She was about, about 24, not pretty, but with one of those faces that always says, uh, wonderful day, isn't it? Okay, so maybe now I'd find out what all the excitement was about. I walked over. Oh, pardon me. Are you Marina Layton? Yes. And you're... That's it. Box 13. You know, I didn't think there was such a thing. I thought this would all turn out to be some sort of a joke. Oh? Well, uh, do we sit here? If you like. Well, may I have it, Mr... Holiday. First name's Dan. All right. May I have the book, Dan? I, uh... I haven't got it, Marina. But you must have it. Mark said he sent it to you. Oh, no, no. Another character in the show. And who's Mark? He was my father's dearest friend. But but surely you ought to know that. Look, Marina, I, I don't know a thing. I... Wait a moment. Here. Here's his letter to me. You want me to read it? Yes. Dear Marina, for years I've kept something from you that your father wanted you to have. Now I know someone else wants it. But you can have it by writing to Box 13, Care of the Star Times. I want to write more, but I don't dare. Just remember, your own name is a clue. Love, Mark. Well? Well, what? If your father wanted you to have what he gave to this Mark, why didn't he try to get it from me? Who? Who tried to get what from you? Your father and mother, they... That's crazy. My mother died when I was born, and... And my father disappeared almost five years ago. Oh, now it begins to make some sense. Not much, but a little. What are you talking about? The character who said he was your father, he, he wanted that copybook of yours. He must have found out in some way that Mark had it. But who was the man? I don't know. He said he was your father. I don't understand all this. It makes two of us. But listen, I... What's the matter? How do I know you're Marina Layton? But I, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you are. Because since someone already took the copy book from me early this morning, it'd be a little senseless to try to get it this way. All right, Marina, what do you know about a copy book? Yours, with the date 1930 written in it. Copy book? Mine? But nothing, nothing at all. Huh? Oh, now, wait a minute. All this business has to mean something. Don't you even remember a copy book? Well, I suppose I must have had one. I... Wait, of course. Black, ragged-looking alphabets in it. That's it. Now, what about it? Oh, nothing. It was just an ordinary book. I, I scribbled in it and... Did you say 1930? Oh, yes. Why? Because in 1930, I was with my father in Mexico. I had the book then because I was being tutored by Mark and I, I used it for my lessons. Did you write anything in it that might, well, that might be important? No, not a thing. Well, you must have. I didn't. Did you write the Spanish words, La Noche Trista? Why, that means the sad night. Yes, I know. Did you write them? No, I don't think so. Then your father must have. But why? Are you sure those words were in the book? Well, of course I am. Oh, uh, would Mark know? Mark? Why, Mark's dead. Now back to The Sad Night, another Box 13 adventure with Alan Land as Dan Holliday. We went to the place where Mark had lived. Yes, he was dead. Heart failure, the doctor said. 
But we learned something else. That he had had visitors the night he had died. And from the description of them, they could have only been the man and woman who posed as Marina's parents. And I learned a few things more from Marina. That her father was an archaeologist, and in 1930 he was excavating Aztec ruins outside Mexico City. It was on the way back to Kling's office in my car that she told me some more. Father disappeared in Brazil almost five years ago. Then the remains of his expedition were found. And your father? He... he died. But he left records, letters for the museum. And anything for you? No, nothing. Are you sure? Yes. <laughs> Wrote letters to the museum, yet nothing for his daughter. Why do you say it like that? Doesn't it seem odd that he should leave letters and records for everyone but you? Yes, it, it does. There are a lot of things that seem odd. You wait here, Marina. I'll be right out. Well, Holiday, I'm just about to leave your office. Oh, what'd you find out? You were distinguished company this morning. Little George E. Garson, strong man, General Hoodlum. Well, I didn't think it was Little Evil. Want me to pick him up? Yeah, I'd love your company. Okay, Kling, let's go. I want to ask Georgie a few questions. It took Kling about five minutes to get Georgie to talk. He told us he'd been hired to get that book and from his description of the guy who hired him. Well, it couldn't have been anyone else but the man who poses late the day before. Then a quick trip to the house on Lakeshore Boulevard. We might as well have stood in bed. The fake Mr. and Mrs. Layton were gone, and with them, the copybook. And that left us at a dead end. But dead. But at the morgue of the Star Times, Marina and I learned something else. Uh-huh. I think we got lots of stuff on Albert Layton. Well, try it out, Josie. Yeah. He's the one who got himself lost in Brazil about five years ago, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, here's a folder on him. News clips, photos. Uh, that's Dad. Look. Look, who's this, Jonesy? Well, let me see. Oh, that's the guy you found, Leighton, or what was left of the expedition. Name of Carl Bremer. Oh, Mr. Bremer and the gent who wanted that book are one and the same. Did you ever see Marina? Not that I remember. Where were you when your father went to Brazil? In school. And you didn't see him again after he left for Brazil? No. Jonesy. Uh-huh. You know a lot of things. What are the Spanish words, la noche... Triste mean to you? Uh, nothing except they mean the sad night. Is that all? Yeah, why? Because they mean more than that. Marina, can you get a sample of your father's handwriting? Oh, yes, of course. And I've got a hunch that Bremer and his wife are leaving for Mexico. Hey, Dan. Yeah? Look, this Leighton was an archaeologist. Why don't you go to the museum to find out about him? Good idea, Jonesy, thanks. But I've got a phone call to make first. If my hunch is correct, we've got to stop Bremer from getting to Mexico. <laughs> straight, Dan. You want this Prima and his wife picked up, huh? Yeah, that's it. What's the charge? You pick them up, I'll prefer charges. And maybe one of them will be murder. What? Will you do it? Well, what if they're out of the country by now? Extradite them. Well, you've got to have a strong charge to do uh, that. I have. One, causing the death of an old man by trying to force something out of him. Two, hiring Georgie Garson to break into my apartment. And three, attempting to defraud. Is that enough? Yeah. Make those charges stick. You get them and I'll make them stick. Marina got a sample of her father's handwriting. Is this what you wanted? 
You sure this is your father's handwriting? Of course. That's a letter from him, just before he left for the interior of Brazil. But the writing in the book, it was, it was nothing like this. Well, maybe he didn't write it. He must have. He... Wait a minute. Mind if I... Uh, mind if I write on the other side of this paper? No. Okay. Now watch. I'm right-handed. But suppose I write like this with, with my left hand. What's it look like? Just a scrawl. Sure, as a kid would write. As you would have written in 1930. But why would he have done that? To make it look as though you'd written it. Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, it does make sense if you realize that your father had learned something. Something that was big enough to make him want to hide it. And where would he hide it? In a place no one would ever think of looking for it. A kid's copybook. No. No, he kept his, his notebooks. Everything he did was in his own notes. But not this. You were with him in 1930. What was he doing? I told you, working on the Aztec ruins outside of Mexico City. And what did he find? His findings were published. The museum has oh, a Oh, the museum, the museum. What's the matter with me? Come on, Marina. Maybe we're getting someplace. Yes, of course I know Albert Layton's work. He was a great man. world has lost a genius, Miss Layton. Too bad. Look, Mr. Dougal, we want you to help us. I'll do my best. You said over the phone that it was important. Had something to do with our Mexican antiquities here at the museum. Yes, that's right. What did Professor Layton send here? Well, uh, come in here, into the Aztec room. I... I remember all these things. Of course, everything isn't here. The Mexican museums were given their share and... Oh, pardon me. Yeah? Uh, look. What's the matter? Uh, look, look, on that far wall, th those figures. Oh, yes. Well, they're only copies. Quite well done, of course. The original paintings were lost when the Spaniards destroyed the temples. The I Aztecs were well jealous and more like people. Because on the far wall were the same figures I'd seen in that copybook. The same grotesque, weird figures with their twisted bodies and savage faces. There were three of them. Their painted eyes looked out at us, seemed to accuse us. I, I turned to the curator. Mr. Dougal. Yes, Mr. Holliday. What, what are those figures? Well, they're Aztec gods. The one over here in the upper left is Quetzalcoatl, supreme god of the Aztecs. The one in the upper right is Huitzilopochtli. He's one of my favorites, a god of war. The one at the base of the triangle is Tlaloc, god of rain. Marina, those were the figures in your copybook, and they were above the words La Noche Triste. But why? Why should Dad have done that? Mr. Dougal, what is that triangle? Well... Where each of those figures is painted was a temple long ago destroyed by the Spaniards under Cortez. In the center was one of the causeways that led to Tenochtitlan. That's today's Mexico City. It was over that causeway that the Spaniards made their escape on La Noche Triste. La Noche Triste. Look, sit down, Mr. Dougal. I want you to tell me a lot more. The curator talked for an hour. And what he told Marina and me all added up. The copybook, the figures of those old Aztec gods. Oh, Marina's father had something all right. And he hid it in that copybook. No wonder Bremer wanted it. No wonder old Mark had kept it and the whole thing made a story that went back over 400 years. A story of greed and bloodshed. One that reached out to touch me, Marina, old Mark, Bremer, all of us. Later in Kling's office, facing the Bremers, with Marina sitting there, too. All right, Holiday, let's have it. First, I'll take that copybook, Bremer. All right. What good will it do you? None. 
And it wouldn't have done you any good either. What do you mean? You caused the death of one man to get this. Another man, famous, respected, lost his head and tried to keep what he had found. But it wouldn't have done your father any good either, Marina. No, I... I know. What's the story, Dan? Well, it really begins, Kling, when Bremer found the remains of the late expedition in Brazil. He found letters, records. He brought some of them back with him, but some he didn't. That right, Bremer? You know everything. You tell it. Thank you, I will. One of the letters was to Marina. Marina, whose name is the same as the Indian girl who was Cortez's consort. That was the one you kept, Bremer. A letter telling Marina about the copybook and what it contained. All right, all right. What is it, Holiday? Let's, let's go back to July 1st, 1520, to Hernan Cortez and his army. The army that marched through Mexico and destroyed the Aztec Empire. That's got something to do with all this? Everything. On that night, the Aztecs rose up in fury against the Spaniards. They had thought Cortez and his men were gods, but they'd found out differently. They determined to drive the Spaniards out forever. The Spaniards took all the gold they could carry. The Aztecs went after them. They trapped Cortez and his army on one of the causeways that led to the city. The causeways were narrow. There were thousands of Indians in canoes. All night long, the battle went on until... Till in the morning, 450 of the Spaniards were dead and thousands of Aztecs. But Cortez and a remnant of his army escaped, got to the mainland. And, uh, the copybook? Those three words, La Noche Triste, the sad night, are written into Mexican history as the night Cortez and his army and the Aztecs fought and killed each other until the canals were choked with them. The gold the Spaniards took with them did them no good. They couldn't fight with it. Or eat it. So sobbing and screaming, they dumped the treasure into the waters of the canal, and it sank into the mud of the bottom. It's never been found. Marina's father thought he had located it. But look. Here's a map of modern Mexico City, where the causeways once ran. There are streets and houses, so you see, no one will ever find that gold. And maybe, maybe it's just as well. It's it's too red with blood to be of any use to anyone. But gee, Mr. Holliday, if all that gold's there, why doesn't somebody go after it? Oh, you too, Susie. Oh, no, I guess not. But oh, tell me something, Mr. Holliday. What were the names of those Aztec gods? Uh, quit. Uh, uh, Winkin, Blinkin, and Nod. Good night, Susie. Next week, same time, through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, Ellen Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville with an original story by Russell Hughes. Original music is composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. Part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker and that of Lieutenant Kling by Edmund MacDonald. Production is supervised by Vern Carstensen. This is a Mayfair production from Hollywood. Watch for Alan Ladd in his latest Paramount picture. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is OTR Rod welcoming you to uh, part of the Abbott and Costello show, the part where we... Um, Highlight Sam's trouble and maybe a little bit of a routine prior to 
uh, the introduction of Sam Shovel, so you can kind of get into it. You know, this when Abbott and Costello first started in uh, on radio, when I think they were on the Kate Smith program, and then I think they went over to the Edgar Burke and Charlie McCarthy show and were regulars on that show doing a routine. Lou Costello had to actually change his voice because his voice and Abbott's voice over the air on radio were very similar, so people couldn't pick out who was talking and it sounded like it was one person talking when it was actually, you know, but Abbott and Lou Costello. So Lou Costello actually had to change his voice. He had to go up a couple of octaves higher. And since he was a singer, he knew how to do that. So he, his voice went up a couple of octaves. And that way, the audience could tell the difference between Bud Abbott and Lou Costello over the air. Now, it's really interesting, you know, um, when... They started to do these uh, Sam Shovel episodes. They were done as a lark, and they, nobody really expected that really to take off, and it really ha did take off. It got legs on its own, the Sam Shovel shows. So um, the show within the Abbott and Costello show, which was the Sam Shovel shows, really, really started to take off. It really was something that they... It was like a monster. It just... It just took over, and uh, and I don't know how long this is going to last, how many episodes of Sam Shovel we're going to get out of Abbott and Costello, but so far we've gotten quite a few, and I look forward to them, and I hope you do too when I present these Sam Shovel episodes to you, because it was a completely different character for Lou Costello to play. He actually had to lower his voice several octaves, again, not to be conflicted with uh, Bud Abbott, and also because, you know, he was playing a serious, kind of semi-serious, he was trying to be serious anyway, detective. So, <laughs> anyway, so that's a little bit of the history of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, and enjoy these episodes of Sam Shovel, because I like them, and I hope you do too. And I'm really shocked here because uh, these episodes of, of Abbott and Costello lately have been in really great sound quality, and especially this one. It is in wonderful sound quality. I did, had to do nothing except maybe boost the volume just a little bit. But other than that, these episodes are really great. They're really in wonderful sound quality. I was shocked. Hey, Abbott, what time is it? It's time for the Abbott Costello Show. We're on the air for ABC here in Hollywood. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go with the Abbott and Costello Show. Ow, ow, ow. Ow. Now get out of here and stay out of here. What's the matter, Abbott? Who hit you? The sound man. I like to I like to fool around with the sound effects. Every time I go over there and and touch the stuff, he hits me. Is that so? Yeah. Huh? He can't do that to my partner. Come on, we're going over there and we'll tell him. Now, there's the sound effects department, Abbott. Go ahead. Come on, fool around with anything you like. Thanks, Pat. Blow the whistles. Do anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, this is fun. Make a train. Yeah. So, you're fooling around with my stuff again, eh? Uh, ow! Ow! Stop! Stop! 
I certainly am. What? Abbott, if you don't stop fooling with this guy's stuff, he's going to knock your brains out. This is all my fault for listening to you. From now on, I'll take care of myself. I can stand up for my rights. Why don't you stand up for your rights with that guy? How could I? His lefts kept knocking me down. Let's go back there, Abbott. Somebody's writing this wrong. Let's go back there, Abbott. I'll take care of you. I'm plenty tough. Here, feel my muscle. Go ahead and feel it. Muscle. I can't feel anything but a, a red corpsel. Yeah, but ain't it got a hard head? <laughs> Who are you kidding? I'm the guy has got muscle. I used to be a prize fighter. I was one of the cleanest fighters in the ring. You should have. You should have been. They threw enough water on you. <laughs> I'm the guy that can fight. I remember the last guy I fought. I hit him so hard that he hollered uncle. Well, who who are you fighting with? My little three-year-old nephew, Tony. <laughs> I thought so. You you can't fight and you can't act. In fact, none of your family has any talent. Just a minute. Yeah. How, how about my cousin Vincent? He had a great voice, but he could only sing while taking a bath. They used to wheel him out on a stage in a bathtub. He'd seen him sing while taking a bath, but they fired him after his first performance. Why? When the people started applauding, he forgot himself a step and took a bow. <laughs> What is he doing now? Writing songs. You should hear his new song. He took a little of it from Irvin Berlin, a little from Cole Porter, a little from Sigmund Runberg. What did he get? Three lawsuits. <laughs> uh, forget about your cousin. Wait a minute. What's all that mail doing in your pockets? Abbott, that's my fan mail. Everybody in the country is talking about my great character, Sam Shovel. Here, I'll read one. Dear Lou Costello, I'm simply crazy about your Sam Shovel detective programs. Last week, as I sat listening to your show, you were so thrilling, I froze to my seat. I'm coming over tonight to see you. There's a guy out here to see you, Costello. What does he look like? He's a short man with a frozen seat. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Costello. Let's get on with the show. What is your uh, Sam Shovel case for tonight? It's one of my smaller cases, Abbott. I call it the case of the sailor who was shot while having Hedy Lamar and Lana Turner's pictures on his chest, or he died with his buttes on. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Let's do it. Okay. And now the makers of Crummies, the breakfast food that dares to be different, presents the adventures of Sam Shovel, private detective. But first, a word about our product, Crummies. Crummies is the only breakfast food that comes ready to serve. We put in the sugar, strawberries, milk, and cream right into the package. Look for it on your grocer's shelf in the large, soggy box. <laughs> And Crummies is fine for the youngsters. You can safely feed Crummies to a two-year-old. Some of the well-known two-year-olds that eat Crummies are Citation, On Trust, and Bazooka. <laughs> crummies is the only breakfast food that is shot from cannon. So remember, when opening the package, stand back. <laughs> You can put that in your pipe and smoke it. In fact, it tastes better if you put it in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and now for the further adventures of Sam Shovel, Private Detective. Yes, I'm Sam Shovel. Sam Shovel, Private Detective. I don't feel so good today. Last night, my fraternity invited me to a football dinner. That's the last time I'll eat football for dinner. <laughs> I'm kind of tired, too. I traveled all night. I rode the chief in from Albuquerque. Next time, I'm going to take a train. 
Riding piggyback on an Indian is murder. I was down there trying to get a conviction on one of my cases, Maxie the murderer. But he had a clever lawyer. I charged him with murder, but the jury whitewashed him. I charged him with larceny, but the jury whitewashed him. Then I took him to a Turkish bath. I had to get all that whitewash off him. <laughs> my correspondence is piled, piled up away. Wow, a lot while I was away. I see a carbon copy of the letter I sent to Sears and Roebuck for a pair of handcuffs. It reads, send handcuffs. If good, we'll send check. <laughs> then I pick up their answer. It reads, send check. If good, we'll send handcuffs. <laughs> That reminds me I may get called on another case. I think I'll clean my Remington before I put it back in my pocket. Someday I'm going to buy a gun. <laughs> I get tired carrying a typewriter in my pocket. Suddenly I look up. There on the wall of my office is an oil painting. Bought it last year. It's pretty. But it's a lot of trouble. Every day I got to oil it. <laughs> I glance across the court. The beautiful stenographer in the insurance office is just coming to work. She's punching the time clock. punched her back. <laughs> I pick up my morning paper on the front page. There's a picture of John L. Lewis. John L. Lewis on the front page. I study his face. I'm trying to figure which eyebrow has the Tony. <laughs> Looks like another slow day for the detective business. As I sit here in my little office, I'm unhappy. I'm down in the dumps. Whenever I'm in this office, I feel down in the dumps. That's not strange. My office is located at the dumps. <laughs> Across from my office is a stationery store. There's no sign on it, but I'm sure it's a stationery store. I've been watching it for two years. It hasn't moved an inch. <laughs> I just remember last week, my pal, Lieutenant Abbott, invited me to dinner, and I must send his wife a bread and butter note. That's a sloppy job. There's nothing I hate worse than writing on bread and butter. <laughs> I glance out at the window in the parking lot. They're getting ready to move my car again to let another one out. I hope the owner moves it, not the reckless attendant. Thank goodness the owner moved it. I noticed my pal, Lieutenant Abbott, and the homicide squad coming this way. He's a regular bloodhound. When he's after a crook, he can smell a trail. In fact, he smells any place. One thing about Lieutenant Abbott, he speaks straight from the shoulder. He's got to. That's where his mouth is. <laughs> Just then, Lieutenant Abbott walks into the office. Hello, Sam Shovel. Sam, I just had the most sensational lunch. What a meal. I ordered pork chops, bacon, fried ham, pig's knuckles. When Lieutenant Abbott eats, he goes hogwild. <laughs> well, a cop has got to keep his strength up, Sam. I never know when I'll get in a fight. Lieutenant Abbott is right. One thing I'll say for him, he never ran away from a fight. He always takes a taxi. <laughs> Sam, I'm, I'm happy today. I'm feeling pretty chipper. I'm really chipper. Lieutenant Abbott is not lying. Nobody is chipper than he is. He's the chippest man I ever met. He lives at the Fiddle Hotel. It's a violin. <laughs> Rooms are a dollar a night and up. If you get a room for a dollar, you're up all night. Ma'am, I thought I heard something moving. The sound came from that bureau. We crossed the office to the bureau and started opening the drawers. There's nobody here. You won't find me here. It's my bureau of missing persons. <laughs> Speaking of missing persons, Sam, what happened to that crooked musician you were trailing? 
Lieutenant Abbott was referring to Matty Banjo Head Malnick, the leader of one of the crookedest bands in this country. Sam, how can you say that? Matty's boys are all artists. They must be artists. I know they're not musicians. <laughs> Lieutenant, when Matty Banjo Head Malnick heard I was after him, he took it on the lamb. That was three weeks ago. Hiya, Sam Shovel. He's still on that lamb. <laughs> Sam, you gotta help me. That Bergman gang is trying to shake me down for $10,000. And I'm afraid I'll have to pay through the nose. Why should you have to pay through the nose? That's where I keep my money. <laughs> what a clever crook that Malnick is. When he needs money, he don't have to blow a safe. He just blows his nose. <laughs> just look at it. I'd like to have his nose full of Canadian nickels. <laughs> Malnick, you'll have to get out of here. Sam and I are talking business. I'll go, but first I want to give Sam this batch of cookies I baked for him. Here, Sam, they're your favorite kind, policeman cookies. Policeman cookies? Sure, ain't you never heard of cop cakes? <laughs> so long, copper. Everybody's got good writers but me. <laughs> I'm going to have to start paying next week. That Malnick is a very clever boy. He ought to go over to the Eagle Laundry and put his head in with the flat work. Well, never mind him, Sam. Hey, look who's coming across the street. It's Two-Gun Gertie. Two-gun Gertie, the gorgeous gun mall. Once I asked her to marry me, but she refused. She's too class conscious. Gertie is class conscious? I ain't got no class, and she's conscious of it. <laughs> Just as I finished making this clever remark, the door burst open, and Gertie entered my office. Sam! Sam, shovel my darling. Oh, Sam, you gotta help me. What's up, Gert? The cops are after me. They think I'm hiding something. They think I've got it on me. You may have it on you, but you sure ain't hiding anything. Careful, Sam. She's up to something. Oh, Sam, you gotta help me. If you do, I'll be your slave. I'll cook for you. I'll bake for you. I'll, I'll sew for you. I'll... Keep going, Gert. You're bound to hit something I like. <laughs> Hard, Sam. Come here. I'm gonna let you kiss me. Sam, show me. Where are your manners? Where are your manners? How dare you kiss this gun mall right before me? Wait your turn, Lieutenant. I'll kiss you next. Sam, Sam, why don't we start going steady again? We could be so happy. Look out the window, Sam. See those two lovebirds in that tree? Yes. Why can't we be like them and do what they're doing? Okay, but I don't think the branches will hold us. <laughs> Sam, this is ridiculous. You're a cop and she's a crook. She's not for you. Ah, keep out of this, Flatfoot. I'll prove to Sam that I'm the girl for him. I'll give him a kiss that'll bust the buttons off his vest. That... That I'd like to see. Come here, Sam. 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 Sam Shovel, say something. Has any lady in the audience got a needle and a thread?
Costello. We're a little late, so you better say thanks to this lovely audience in the studio and to all the swell people who are listening in at home. Thanks for listening, folks. And I would like to thank the people that help us bring you this show every Thursday night. Our writing staff is headed by Eddie Foreman with Paul Conlon, Pat Costello, Martin Ragaway, and Leonard Stern. And thanks to Maddie Malnick and all his boys and our vocalist, Hal Winters. And thanks also to our producer, Charles Vander. We'll be back again at the same time next Thursday. Good night, folks. Good night to everybody in Paris. Good night. Listen each Thursday night at this time for another great Abbott and Costello show, produced and transcribed in Hollywood. Be sure to stay tuned for the outstanding entertainment which follows throughout the evening on this ABC station. everyone thank you for tuning in and i hope you'll come back next week please stay safe and do all the stuff that the cdc says for you to do and so you will be back next week because it means a lot to me in fact it means the world to me thank you